friends, Romans, countrymen. What's up, y'all? It's the MC Lars podcast with your boy, MC Lars. It is Monday, April 22nd. This is episode 34 with Wait What? So on Friday, the Mask of the Red Death single came out. Yo! And uh, this Friday, we got another single coming out, which is Bartleby the Scrivener, which is a ska song with Jarrett from Bowling for Soup. So that's going to be tight. Bartleby, of course, is the Melville book that Office Space is based on. So the art for that single is a parody of the Mike Judge Office Space art. I want to give a shout out to my homie Juan E. Diego. He's one guy, but he goes by Juan E. Diego. And he's in Mexico, and he does he's been doing all the art for the singles for the Mega Ran collab. So again, I want to thank everyone who came to see us on the UK tour. It was magical. It was special. It was just awesome. I want to thank my touring mates. I got a tour coming up. I want to promote it real quick. I'm with Front A Lot, Mega Ran and Schaefer the Dark Lord. It starts a week from tomorrow in Fargo, North Dakota. Then we go to Minneapolis, Milwaukee, Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland, Rochester, Columbus, Pittsburgh, Nashville, Birmingham, Charlotte, Atlanta, Gainesville, West Palm Beach, Orlando. So nerdcoretour.com for dates. It's It ends May 16th in Orlando. So I Yeah, I don't know when I'll be touring after this. I have nothing on the book. So if you want to come see me, this is your chance. There's a lot of news, but I can't drop it all on you now. Y'all got to wait. Uh, on the Patreon tip, I want to thank... <laughs> That's like so 90s hip-hop. On that tip! That's okay. It's funny how now using slang that used to seem really fresh and current as a mid-30s white person now feels like often very dated. On that tip, with that flavor, but... Whatever, <laughs> whatever. New Patreon supporters, I want to thank Emily, Martin, and Jessica. Some old supporters, I want to thank Chris Peck, who pecked a town crier, who's going to be on a future episode, Sarah, and my wife, Ash Wednesday. Thanks, Ash. She's so sweet. She supports me on Patreon and in other ways. So anyway, uh, what else? Oh, yes. So we have Dragon Blood Part 2 coming out shortly, and then I'm doing an Alice in Wonderland song this month. And then next month, I'm doing a Goosebumps song and a uh, song about the Goofy movie. People have been on the Patreon. I did a private post like asking for suggestions, and so I'm going to do a song about everyone's suggestions. So if you're a supporter, jump into that thread and give me a suggestion, because chances are I'll probably write a song about it. It's cool to have like guides or like you know so- fan requests for these songs. So speaking of fan requests, I request that you guys <laughs> become a fan of Wait What. Charlie Cabal, I talked about him a little bit at the end of last week's podcast. I met Charlie. He was a guest at the summer camp I worked at it near Lake Tahoe called Stanford Sierra Camp. He came to my hip-hop workshop. I did a talk on the history of hip-hop when like, when I was 19, actually, and hip-hop, I guess, was still relatively young, or at least younger. And Charlie came to my talk, and he was interested, and I found out he was a musician. And then he went to school in New York, and he'd come to my shows when I played there, when I finished college. He went to Columbia, and then he went to Stanford to get his MBA. So he's a super smart guy. Meanwhile, check this out. He's been doing mashups. Well, he raps too. He used to, I interviewed him on my old serious show and played some of his raps. But um, he got known for doing these mashups. He did this Biggie XX, Notorious B.I.G. XX mashup album that blew up and then the label sent a uh, uh, cease and desist to him. But that was kind of his inroad into performing. And he went on to play um, Bamboozle, play shows internationally. He still does his music. He still does these cool mixtapes. But now he works in the tech startup world. So we talk about, like, the show is about people who are adaptive with the changing media landscapes. And that's what inspires me about Charlie. Like, I 
am proud of him because he has taken every opportunity. And one opportunity that he took advantage of was I was I used to be managed by a company called Network. And um, one summer I recommended him for an internship. He applied there, but I told them they should they should bring him on. And he was an amazing intern at Network. He's gone on to bigger and better things. So this is my interview with Wait What, Charlie Cabal. We're going to hear uh, one of his favorite mashups after this, one of the dopest ones. So check that out. I'm MC Lars. Thanks for tuning in. Happy Easter. Well, actually, we already had Easter. So I hope you had a happy Easter. <laughs> okay. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here in Potrero, the Potrero area of San Francisco with my man, Charlie, a.k.a. Wait What. He is a entrepreneur, an artist, a musician, a rapper, which we'll get into, <laughs> and a producer, a DJ, and a really cool guy, and I consider a good friend. So what's up, Charlie? Not much, Lars. It's good to be here. I'm, uh, I'm psyched to be doing this. We did this on Sirius, a Sirius radio, satellite radio. We did. I think in like 2005. Long time ago. When you were at Columbia. Yeah, I was at Columbia, and I don't know if you remember this, we recorded it like in a subway station. At Union Square, I think. Yeah, I think it was Union Square. Did it air? Yeah, it totally aired. That's sick. It was really sick. It gave me a lot of like college street cred. I was like, listen to my episode with uh, with Lars on Sirius. <laughs> you had you had done a um, this, the real CK, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had this rap project that I uh, called myself CK and like self-produced this like uh, bedroom hip hop. <laughs> and I remember I always I always would tell you I I love the song where you sample something corporate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Dude, I, that's a great memory. That was <laughs> it was just it was cool because I met you we I was working at this uh, alumni summer camp. Yeah. And you were a guest, right? I was a guest. I was like a teenager. I mean, I think you were in college. You yeah. must have been in college. I was like a sophomore in high school or something, probably. Yeah, so I was only maybe three yeah. four years older. Yeah. Not even probably yeah, two or three. And that and you were like what week were you? Four. Week four. Fourth of July week always. That was cool. It was like the parade. That's you see dope. all your like same friends each year. It was fun. <laughs> and a talent show. Yeah, and and the uh, I remember they'd have the firemen shoot uh, water from the boat, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. Kids going crazy. It it's um it's crazy because I did a I would do it teach a class about the history of rap. Yeah. And this is in two thousand two two thousand three when rap still had, you know, the fifteen last years of hip hop have been crazy. Yeah, totally crazy. So it was like up to that where like where I was like. I remember it would end with Dizzy Rascal. Yeah. As hip hop was becoming more electronic and eclectic. Totally. That was actually very like, because it was becoming that, but it's also, that wasn't mainstream yet. So it was like very insightful to call that in 2002. And it was pre, you know, I guess um, we'll get into this and I, I'll, ju I'll jump right into this, but like the mashup stuff, the Danger Mouse thing was what, 2004? Yeah, probably because I think that J album, Black album was, I think 2003. So it was probably like 2004, 2005 when like, that first sort of like mainstream mashup album was a uh, great album. Yeah. And he also got a cease and desist. He did. <laughs> he like, I mean, he wrote that pretty well though. Cause then he became Gnarls Barkley and, uh, made crazy and yeah. And didn't he do the song with the guy from the shins? Don't they have that a project? Familiar. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They do. Uh, Gave up the ghost is the song. Yeah. 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 That's very familiar. He's done yeah. a bunch of like super interesting musical projects. I feel like that was his like first foray, but he, it was very much like a sample of all he had to offer. Yeah, and like the fact that he had the chutzpah to do that, to, right. to put it together and, and be fearless about it. Especially with the Beatles, too, who are notoriously that estate is like, do not touch a single drum hit from any of our records, otherwise we'll sue you to oblivion. 
and that was cool because it was this advent of home recording. Mm-hmm. I also remember I was in New York for CMJ and at like the um, drive through records after party. Yeah. And you came up to me and you talked to me and I did. And for a second, I was like, I know this guy. And I was like, <laughs> oh, it's Charlie from Stanford Camp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was so friendly of you to like, you've always, and like a few years ago, you just showed up, you bought a ticket to the show. Dude, totally. Yeah. I feel like I've had these like awesome, uh, <laughs> as you've been on tour, as you've been doing stuff and able to like check in and, and say what up and see your sets. It means a lot, man. Of course, man. I'm always stoked to see him. I love your... Um, Okay, we're we're gonna work backwards, but yeah. you did a book. You 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 yeah. You printed an incredible book. Can we talk about that? Yeah, of course. Um, thank you, man. I'm glad you you liked it. Um, it was again like one of these projects where you sort of take like different art forms and reinterpret them to make something new and try and like view uh, something maybe familiar like through this new lens, this new like vantage point. Um, and so took a bunch of these old uh, comics from the Family Circus and then t- put like popular hip hop lyrics as like the replacement caption. They were like situationally relevant to what's going on. Um. So that's like, you know, there's like a, a dad putting his shoes on and the kid is talking to him and the caption is like a Kanye line, like, have you ever had shoes without shoestrings? Or like <laughs> something that's kind of a throwaway line, but it's funny to me to be like recontextualized in a new way. And they work very well. Thanks, man. Especially when they're kind of foul mouthed. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like there's another one that I like that I, uh, I made this browser extension recently that basically just loads like a random one. And this is like a week or two ago and sent it to a coworker and he's like, oh man, it was great. I like screen capped this. And he was dealing with some stuff at work where it's like he was like messaging, text messaging his friends. Um, he's like a father of like two or three. And so he sent this comic over to his friends explaining the situation. Uh, and the caption was like a Dre line, like, just remember you fucking with a family man. <laughs> like, oh, man, that's uh, that's pretty good. So it, it, it's like a random generator. Yeah, basically it yeah. has like uh, like a hundred of these comics. Every time you open a new tab, it just like pops up with one of these new comics. Mm, um, that's dope. Which is cool. Though it's funny with the foul mouth ones, it's like you could be in like a work presentation, you're presented to like important people <laughs> and you like open a new tab and you don't even think about it. And it's like this Russian roulette of like, is it going to be this like foul mouth rap lyric? And if it is, are they a hip hop fan or not? Because it could go either way. <laughs> and do they, like I found myself being like, that's familiar, but I don't quite know where. Yes. That's yeah, tight. Absolutely. People get that reaction a lot. So you, how many, so you go through and you have like, like, hundreds of quotes that you like yeah it was very like methodical that process actually um it was um it was a lot it was more scientific than art to start so like, it was very sort of scientific to, to get to the point where it feels like a cool art project and so basically what i did is i listened to like all my favorite uh hip-hop records um which was really fun practice to do and i'd be listening to one and also looking up lyrics for other ones and trying to basically just take in as much music as i could and then remember like all these lyrics of my favorite artists had like a Google spreadsheet of probably like 600, 800 lyrics. And the other thing was like, I had to have, a, I had to have like imagine what could be a possible like cartoon that would pair with it. Mm-hmm. And so I'd be like, oh, this one talks about like a barbecue. And so like, if I could find a cartoon of like a family barbecue, that would make sense. Um, and so then I'd have these lyrics and I'd basically look through this archive of, there's like thousands of these comics. So like figuring out what is like a combination of like a lyric that I like. And it's like funny enough to make sense of. So then I made probably like four or 500 uh, comics and then like went through and actually rated like how funny I thought they were on like a one to four scale and then just took all the you know threes and fours and that was the book. That's the thing about you. You're <laughs> you're an artist and you're also an engineer. Yeah, a little bit. And and, and that yeah. to approach something like that means that you made sure that the book was just your favorites, right? Totally. Yeah. yeah. And it's also super interesting like putting a book together too because like one thing I was thinking about is because I had you know there were ones I like more than others of like assuming if someone picks up a book like they're probably not going to listen to it or sorry, like read it all the way through in the same way that like people stack like the singles of like uh, for their album, like in the first half of the album usually. 
um, because you know you sort of have, especially like nowadays, like a limited attention span. So mm. if they see the first like 10 or 20, you gotta make sure you have some hits in there that like rope them in to like keep checking it out. And then you're, the idea of primacy and recency, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The last, last few have to be your favorites too. Exactly, right? yeah, yeah, it's a great point. So it's like start strong, finish strong. Hopefully have like some strength in the middle, but like more crucial to, to start and finish strong. And then you were in a museum, right? You showed, you you did some canvases? It was, yeah, museum would be putting like a very generous term on it. <laughs> it was like a DIY art show that my friend put on. But it was cool, like, because he actually did the thing. I think what made me stoked about it was one, like, he put the, um, like, the museum style, like, thing that says, like, the name of the artist and when it was made and a little bio. Right. Um, and then the really dope thing about it was, like, I never had this experience before because anytime I've presented any kind of art, it's usually either me playing a song for someone, in which case they know the context, or they come to a show and they see uh, see me play. And, like, in that, there's no way to be, like, a fly on the wall to, like, see how people actually react to it. Like, mm. every once in a while, you'll be, like, somewhere and, like, someone will play one of your songs in the background. You can see, here's some, like, authentic responses. But it doesn't, like, background music doesn't capture someone's attention the same way a piece of art does. And so it's super interesting because I didn't know anyone at this art show of being able to, like, sort of, like, hang by my piece and like hear what people were saying about it or like they I had the book next to it they'd like pick it up uh, cool. and it's cool there's like a couple like on probably like a first or second date and they're like going through it for like 10 minutes and like talking about it and be like oh I know this lyric oh I don't know this one or like it was like this cool way to sort of start generating like stories ahead of like oh I remember this song from like high school and this is what I was doing at the time and it's yeah. cool that like music and like the quotes from it could sort of like both entertain people and also like bring them back to like memories they might not have thought of recently and family circus is timeless too that's what was a, i thought was a cool juxtaposition because that goes back generations really yeah yeah i mean literally generations because now the guy the original artist um he his son now is the guy who like keeps making it and i think it's been in production since like the 60s um which is super cool well wow so he was able to keep the legacy going yeah and like that's it dope. has like a pretty similar art style like i actually i mean it seems like he's yeah really kept it going that's tight it's cool um did you ever see this book it's like it's called uh, uh was it Garfield without Garfield? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's tight. There's a lot of cool, yeah, it's very cool. Were you, uh, yeah. yeah. Were you a fan of the comic strips as a kid? Yeah, I was. I liked, um, I think Calvin and Hobbes was probably my go-to favorite. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I liked The Far Side a lot too. I thought Gary Larson was just like hilarious. Like that brand of humor uh, now as a kid, like just always resonated with me. Um, Short-lived strips that like had a 10-year run of brilliance. Exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. This sort of like moment in time that just really like hit after hit. Um, and then like, I like, I appreciate peanuts. I went to the, uh, the Charles Schultz museum like a year and a half ago. Was it in Petaluma? Yeah. Santa Rosa. Petal- it's like in yeah. that area. Um, I think now is, it might've burned down with the fires they had there last oh my year. God. Um, I'm not sure about that, but someone told me that. Um, but yeah, I mean, so I did read the comics as a kid. Um, definitely had my favorites and family circus actually wasn't one of those favorites. Uh, I always saw it, but it was like, it kind of like hit you over the head with some like super religious stuff and sort of like whole family values. And so that's actually part of the reason like why I wanted to use it because like that's a much starker like reinterpretation of like taking something that I always had this like, you know, sort of borderline annoyance of like, oh, this is like always in the comic strip and like why is it next to like Calvin and Hobbes and Peanuts and the stuff I really appreciate. I think I just didn't get it as a kid. And so now I was like, okay, how can I like reinterpret this to like um, juxtapose these sort of very like wholesome family values with like what are sort of things that are like in my own way sort of like wholesome values I had as like a teenager of like listening to hip hop a lot and like having that as part of my background. It's funny because it's like that Dre quote, Dre and Ice Cube, like, you know, Ice Cube being in kids movies and yeah. they've now become the, the, the sweet older generation. Totally. And Ice-T as a, as a cop. Right. On Law and Order. Yeah. Dude, Ice-T's <laughs> one-liners on Law and Order. That's a, just a treasure trove of, uh, I love his stuff. He's that could hilarious. Be a, you could, that could be a family circus mashup. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
I would watch a YouTube video of just like all iced teas, like one liner quips from Law and Order, like on repeat if someone would make that. I would love that. <laughs> um, you grew up in the in the South Bay? Yeah, Peninsula, like Palo Alto area. Yeah. So not that far actually from Stanford. So did you like, I'm sure you spent a lot of time going to like cultural events on campus at Stanford. Yeah. So I went to, when I was in grad school at Stanford, uh, definitely went to like a good number of cultural events. Um, and then in New York, like also there was like a ton of just music and other like cultural events going on. So yeah. What was Columbia like? It was cool. Uh, it's funny. Like I think a lot of people when they go to college, they're just like so psyched to, to be going to college and like that freedom, the independence. Um, and so like, I, um, I was really psyched about New York and like, I was like, I grew up in a suburban California town. Like what I really want is just to like drink from, uh, the hydrant and just be like, have everything coming at me all at once. Yeah. Um, and so I got that, but it was also as a result, it's like when you do that, when you're like 18, 19, like you kind of grow up fast of like trying to figure stuff out and like, you're thrown into like being an adult sooner than I feel like a lot of people when they go to college, if you're in a campus, it's more enclosed and the administration feels like they're sort of looking out for you. Um, and this was sort of like, yep, figured out, like you're an adult now. Yeah. Um, which I think at first was very much like, like, oh no, like what am I going to do? But then it becomes very free. And like, once you're able to realize that like you are capable of that. And I think that was actually a big thing of like understanding that it's like the world and sort of your ability to have an effect on it is like purely dictated by you and you don't have to rely on other people to do that. And so I think that's actually, um, in part what led to like wanting to make music and like just, mm. you know, do this stuff that like is interesting to you and like you don't have to like you know wait for someone to like promote your stuff or you don't need to wait for like someone to make your beat and like just learn how to do this stuff and like kind of treat it as a project where it's like you're doing something you enjoy and you get better at it as you go as a process rather than like you know waiting for whatever thing that you feel like you're is holding you back from creating that yeah and that's what i always loved about rap as opposed to like rock and being in a band totally because i could do it do on my laptop absolutely yeah like you yeah no totally and that was like a huge inspiration for me it was like uh, in talking to you and having these conversations about like, you know, all you need is, is like, you know, Fruity Loops and like uh, <laughs> one of the old like iBooks or MacBooks and like just putting it all together and like also being able to do the like live show, like totally off a laptop. Um, you were, you, yeah. you and I were early in that. I mean, people- Dude, I just, yeah, I followed your lead, but you were very much <laughs> like the, uh, the originator of that as far as I saw. That's cool, man. Yeah. That was, um, man. So you were rap, were you rapping in high school or was that kind of a college thing? Yeah. So I started, um, my high school had this really cool thing, these senior projects where it's like, usually it's like everyone graduates in like early June, but from like May onwards, uh, seniors don't have class for like a month and you basically propose a project. You have to get like a faculty sponsor. And I had this junior year English teacher, uh, Mr. Sue, who like I knew would be down to sponsor this project because he had like like a Shakespeare thing that he was doing. And then as part of it, we talked about like the cadence of like one of Nas's songs. And he's like, he would definitely be cool with this project. So the project was recording this like three song EP. And I think, um, you know, we'd been in touch a little bit, but that was really when I reached out to you to be like, hey, I'm, uh, you know, this kid from camp. We like talked uh, last year, maybe last like few years. And like, I'm starting to record music. Like, here's what I'm thinking, any advice? Um, and that was sort of the jump off to me making music. What did I say? Ah, uh, I a hope great it was question. helpful. It was super helpful. I remember it was like, I think both of us had like old AOL accounts and we're like emailing back and forth. Yeah. Um, I think it was like, what sort of software like do you think I should use? Um, do I need to like, could I do this on GarageBand? Like, how do you think about, I think one of the things early for me rapping, uh, it was hard, was figuring out like how to like uh, rap in an interesting way, but also like on the beat and like have that timing. So I think I probably sent you some just like awful sounding demos to get your feedback. <laughs> and I think no. you're, I think you're very kind. You're like, Oh yeah, it's like pretty good. If like, maybe you're a little more like try this. 
Um, and so, yeah, it was super helpful. It was a good sort of amount of encouragement uh, to like keep me going. You know, I thought was, I remember you reaching out to me about that. I thought it was cool that you wanted to figure out how to do it yourself yeah. because it's like having this, being an example of, of, of creating culture on your own, it's you really want to share your secrets. So I remember yeah. like feeling like, you know, like it was cool of you to, that you respected that I was doing this and trying to transition to do it professionally and like, totally. And that you had, you, you had the faith in yourself and that, you know, it's like the idea of the secret, right? Yeah. You bring, you bring the positive energy to you. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> well, it's cool. Cause I actually like, funny you say that. Cause I remember, um, this was like, like Lars Horace days of, I remember like the insectivorous album and like you like design wow. all the, uh, <laughs> like the art for that. And I remember like talking to you about like, Oh, how do you do this? And like, assume that like you must like know someone who like knows how to do art for CDs or you had someone produce the beats. And like, as I was asking more questions about how you did this, how you did that, um, I remember thinking it was awesome that like you were just like, oh yeah, I like I learned how to do this or I use this software. Um, and that sort of like self-enabling to like create your own stuff and not sort of waiting for other people to do it. Um, and so like that on the one hand, and then also like being able to go to you, like I think one thing was like, oh, what do I have to lose? Either he'll be like, oh, I figured it out, you can figure it out. Or like what ended up happening is you were just like so willing to share mm. like your best practices, which was super cool. Um, and I remember sending that email of like not being sure sort of which side of the, you know, side of the coin that would rest on. I'm glad you yeah. reached out to you, man. Yeah. And, and your wait, what stuff is just like blown the heck up. <laughs> and that's like, it's, I, I wanted to talk about, well, first I want to talk about, I know you did like an internship at my old management company. Yeah. Yeah. Network. Was that helpful? Dude, super helpful. Yeah. Uh, that was funny. Cause I remember this was like my, uh, second semester of freshman year and like, they had this, I think it was on Absolute Punk, uh, which yeah. was like a website I used to spend a lot of time on. And they're like, oh, we have an internship for like a college student, ideally with some experience in the music industry. And like I was, you know, this like 19 year old who had like recorded an EP like the year before. And like my only in was like knowing you. So I think I got an interview, did the phone call. Uh, but yeah, ended up interning there. It was super cool. Um, the you, first, yeah. You work with Tom a lot? Yeah, I worked with Tom. Yeah. Uh, he was like my main boss. I was like there, you know, once a week doing the college internship thing. I remember this is a funny memory I had of like, I didn't know what to wear to work the first day. Yeah. And so I'm wearing this like, just like ridiculous, like nice, probably like button down blue shirt, like nice black slacks, like sort of business casual. And like, yeah. it's clear, like I do not like know how to dress for like the music industry. And I remember I was there and the first day I was there is the only day this happened. Uh, brand new was there and like brand new was like one of my favorite bands in high school. And so right. it was like cool seeing them, but definitely got looks from them of like, who's the kid wearing like the business casual. Um, <laughs> But they were like fortunately nice about it. I thought you were professional and you took it seriously. <laughs> I think it was like sort of adorable where it's like, you know, it's like imagine like a, you know, like a kindergarten that shows up in a tuxedo. It's like, oh, this kid's taking school real seriously this year. <laughs> well, that's always been you that you are you 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 take things seriously. And that's like you reaching out to me, like asking for recording tips or like yeah. an internship and going and going on to like create these very successful mashup mixes. And, <laughs> And it's like, it's cool, man, because you have, I always found that you have to be overprepared for the opportunities that come. Totally. And I found all the things, doors that open, it's because I dreamed big. Yeah. I believed in myself and I was, uh, you know, it, it helps having a family that loves and supports you. Absolutely. But like feeling like, okay, well I can do this. And yeah, if you show up looking like crap on your first day. Right. That's better to then, what did you wear the next day? <laughs> I think I just like, you know, I saw that people were wearing more like, you know, like plaid shirts and jeans and like tried to dress more of that part. It's like a standard like college uniform actually. So it worked out well. I remember I was there for a meeting with him once and you were working and I was like so proud. Oh, thanks you were man. There. That was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It was super cool. Like, I mean, any it's basically my first like real job was that one. 
Um, so it was cool, like being with those guys. Also, like they were super welcoming about like they went to shows like a couple times a week. And so I also I worked at my college radio station, got a bunch of free tickets from that, and then uh. go to shows with these guys, and like was going to like three or four shows a week. Wow, um, which was super cool. It's like you can imagine like being a kid from like suburban California, you drive like 45 minutes up to the city to like see a show. Yeah. Like that's a, and also like you're in high school versus like you're taking the subway to see like all these bands that are like up and coming with people who have like been in that industry for like 10, 20 years. Who know them. Who know them. Exactly. And like they sort of know what to listen for. And like one of the things I was like really thinking about in college was like trying to get into A&R. And so like hearing how they thought about like watching a band's live performance was super just like awesome having that front row seat. I wonder if you ever, um, felt like people were jaded on things that you saw no reason to be jaded about. Totally. Like, yeah. That's like very nail on the head. Or, or, or I always found, you know, not necessarily with network, but like A&R people trying to, trying to be like, oh, well that was a flop. Right. So of course <laughs> we knew that wouldn't hit. Right. And yeah. How did you not let that affect your like passion and love for life? I think, I mean, I think there's a complicated thing when you mix uh, art with like commerce. So if you like, and trying to, especially when you're not the artist yourself making that music, um, if your job is to like monetize someone else's art, like there's just gonna be inherent complications with that. And I think that's ultimately where I was like, I love doing music and I wanna do this as an artist, but like being on the business side of music, I don't have, like I don't have a solution for that problem of like, you know, you know, you have these artists who you like passionately care about and they've like clearly super passionately care about stuff. But at the end of the day, like it's such a hits driven business. It's especially at the time, like there wasn't this sort of like, um, you either like were the Red Hot Chili Peppers or you were like really struggling to like get any cash because like getting distribution and getting marketing and all that stuff, there were like huge gates before like you could get into the music industry. And now it's like you put your stuff on Spotify, um, the barrier to creation is like much lower. Um, but at the time that was definitely like affected me as far as like figuring out if I wanted to be doing like the business side of the music industry. And I remember iTunes would be like selective and, and about what they put up. Yeah. You could only, I remember we could only submit like one thing a quarter. Even a really? single. Yeah, they were like, especially like when The Graduate came out, they were like, yeah. we want to do a single for it. And they were like, you can only do one thing this quarter. At least that was what That's they told crazy. the distributor. Yeah. Imagine that wanting to like have a barrier to their like profit. Totally. You know? Yeah. I mean, I guess it's like, in fairness to them, they were coming out of this like model, right? Where it's like people would release albums and it was like, it took a long time to like do all that stuff. And now it seems ridiculous because like people put stuff on SoundCloud, like, you know, like Lil B used to put like 15 songs a day on SoundCloud. And it's like, yeah, the more the merrier. And Spotify, same thing. Like people can put a bunch of content up there. But yeah, it is kind of crazy to like, that in music, there has been this like tradition of like middlemen being barriers to artists getting their music to fans, Um, which now is just like so obviously a silly thing, right? Like if you're an artist that's putting up like low quality stuff, like you're going to lose fans. If you, you know, you don't have to rely on this arbitrary middleman of like iTunes having their arbitrary rules of like, saying, you know, how often you can release, which I think is made for like a net much better result for both artists and for fans. And silly things like copyright restrictions. <laughs> you, yeah. um, when did you realize that like you were rapping and sampling bands you liked? When did you go the, the uh, mashup route and how did the Notorious XX thing come together? Yeah, great question. Um, it's kind of a crazy story. So in college, uh, I made that, I made an album, um, that was yeah the one with like the something corporate sample and a bunch of stuff and that's what was it? it was called the real ck right? uh so the name of the artist was like ck uh-huh. and then the name of the album was kind of a big deal oh which is like i think i i think it was ironic at the time i hope it was it uh, was anchorman reference it was an anchorman reference yeah i was like you know that was like comedy of the era yeah uh 
Why did I think the real CK, was that like a shirt you that, had? Uh, that was a screen name I had. That was my old AOL screen name. That's hilarious. It was a cool throwback. The real Calvin Klein or Charlie. Yeah. How do you say it? Let's say Kubal. Kubal, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it was actually funny because like friends of mine at the time actually think of that album as like the real CK. That's funny. It's your so, yeah. name. So yeah, it's like, I'll take it. It's a good throwback. Um, that's like the underground name. It's like only the, it's the like OGs my know La- it. Lars Horace. Yeah, totally. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so I made that album and then... I was like, I really like doing this. I want to get better at it. And so took uh, a couple classes at Columbia. They were like taught at this awesome music studio on 125th Street. And it was cool because like they were taught at what was the first electronic music studio in the US. So it has this really rich history of like, I think it was like the 60s or 70s when like they have like vacuum tube computers and like people doing all kinds of like weird stuff, like the stories they had. It was like a real quick like diatribe, but they had this like full wall of like vacuum tubes and a bunch of like push buttons and wow. some of them were painted, uh, painted red. And it was like, okay, like it didn't, it wasn't like originally red. You could tell like someone put something on it. Apparently what they used to do, they like melted like LSD, uh, into like some like nail polish and like painted that material onto some buttons. So they'd have these like all night mixing sessions and get like a contact high when they like hit those certain buttons. That's crazy. And it was like seven people that basically just like had this like drug trip of like several years making weird music out of the studio. So then like I was there, you know, 40 years later. Was it like uh, synthesized music or rock music or? No, I think it was more, it was like synthesized. I think it was more like, um, yeah, like electronic drums, more synths, like that kind of thing. Interesting. Um, Yeah, cool stories about that place. Anyway, so I like took some classes at this and I took this awesome class uh, my senior year. It was one of these classes, like a two-year wait list. I got in like the very last semester I was there. And... It was cool because it was like me, there was like this girl who ended up being like a pop musician for a couple of years after. Some people who were like, went on to do like music PhDs, like people who were way more accomplished than I was. And I was just like super happy to be there. And one of the coolest parts about it is they gave you 24 hour access to the studio if you're in the class. And there's only like eight or 10 of us. And so I used to just go like at 11 PM and spend like all night in the studio. It's like, it's the kind of studio it'd be like, you're booking for like $100 an hour. But like it was free as a college student. So really took advantage of that to like learn how all this stuff works. And so would they have like Pro Tools or? Yeah, I was on Logic. Yeah, uh, yeah. So Logic has always been what I've recorded my stuff on basically because of that. Yeah. Um, I think also had like Reason, Digital Performer and probably Pro Tools also. But yeah, I was like, it was a Logic guy. Um, and every week we had an assignment that was like make a song with some constraints. And I remember okay. one was like, you can only use your voice, like no drum machine, no keyboards, no nothing. And that was like a really hard one to do to like make those sounds with your voice, the bunch of effects. Um, and one was like, make one without any original music in it, just like all sample based. And I was like, I got this. Uh, and so, cause I'd done, you know, some samples for my album before. And then I basically through that, like made my first mashup. And it was like one of those things where, you know, like the first time you make any kind of art where like you're familiar with it as a consumer of that art. And you're like, I know that this isn't as good as I want it to be, but like, there's something here that like, I want to work hard to get it to the, to the point it reaches my taste. Right. Yeah. To be okay. Um, that was like, I think the closest I ever made something on like first try that it had gotten like, not all the way there, but like more promising, I think than like other stuff I've made in the past, which like was always super fun to make. But I also like, I didn't hold like the stuff that I made, like on the same level as like my favorite stuff of that genre. And this felt like it was at least closer on that spectrum. What was, what artists did you mash up? Uh, let's see. It was a lot of stuff. So vampire weekend, uh, they were going to Columbia. Um, I guess not if they'd graduated the year before me and they were like kind of up and coming and they were actually at a battle of bands that I was at. I remember they finished third of four bands. And I was like, man, these judges are the worst. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so I sampled uh, A-Punk, uh, which is like one of the songs off their first album. I think it was a single. Um, and then it was like, just hopped around with a bunch of different samples. It was like 
That movie uh, Once was also out around that time. There's a song called Falling Slowly. And I remember doing this thing that I thought was like witty where I took like Jay-Z's Fallen from the American Gangster album and put that over like the Falling Slowly piano sample. And then A-Punk came in and then I had Rick Ross hustling over that. And it was just like this weird, um, I liked it because like I listened to a lot of weird different music and I've always held those as sort of like separate, like they're always siloed off. And it was cool because I felt like I was like just mixing a bunch of weird stuff that was like how I think about music in my head. Um, and so that was the first mashup I made. Did you tune things to be in the same key or was it kind of like, no, so that was yeah. actually, yeah, it's funny. Now I listen to it. I'm like, oh man, this was not like, <laughs> this didn't really work. Um, and it was funny cause listening to it at the time I was like, yeah, something sounds off about this, but like couldn't place it. Um, and the main thing is like with rapping people rapping over it, it's like, you have like pretty like loose jurisdiction, right. To just have like Jay-Z flowing over like whatever the key is. It was mostly in like the instrumental transitions would be like much harsher than they need to be. Cause like the key wasn't right. Um, but yeah, so like made that and then that was in like, you know, spring of like 2004, uh, sorry, 2008. Um, and then like a year and a half later, I was working at Google a bunch. Um, tra- sorry, I was working at Google and traveling a bunch. And I remember like, I was like, I really liked making that music. Um, I'm going to try and make like a full album project and like really like dive in on this. And it was one of those things where it's like when you start working after college, like a lot of the time, like the passions you have in college, they sort of just start to fade. And I was really worried about that happening of like, you know, this seemed like I was sort of onto something that I found like really fulfilling. Um, and so I remember listening to the XX album and at first was like, oh, this is like pretty mellow. I don't know if I'm into it. And then was listening to it more. And it's like, there's something really, really cool about sort of the way they capture different feelings and different emotions in a very sort of subtle way. Um, and I was traveling to visit my sister, um, sort of I had a trip to New York for work and I was traveling to, from there to visit my sister and had my laptop and I had an instrumental um, sorry, I had an acapella of Juicy and uh, was also, I was listening to like the original track of like the full version of Juicy and he has that line like Super Nintendo, Sega Genesis. Yeah, right. And uh, then the next song comes on on like Shuffle and it was like the XX's uh, VCR which is like a single from that album. And I was like, oh, that's funny. Like these are so, like this is like, you know, 19, 20 year old sort of introverted kids from England in like 2009, um, 2010 and this is Biggie, who's like the like ultimate sort of extrovert, like um, sort of braggart from uh, from New York, from Brooklyn in like the early 90s. And they're kind of talking about the same thing of like uh, it's almost nostalgia through like the electronics they see at their like family's home. And I was like, that's weird that like, mm. you know, you can't really frame people in like much more different contexts, but like they still have this thing that resonates between them. And I was like, what like what would a conversation sound like between them? And like if you pair them up, are there things you might hear uh, in each of their music that like aren't revealed in the original version. So the first one I made was Juicy with VCR. It's one of those ideas where I was like, I'm not going to tell anyone I'm doing this. I'm just going to like bear down and do it. Sure. It's probably a silly, dumb idea. Uh, and I made it and like I kept listening to it. And I was like, this seems like it's like kind of cool. And then the XX's intro is this like really iconic, just like bumping like instrumental. Um, and yeah, decided to take uh, Biggie's Dead Wrong because I always like really liked that song. Felt like it was really underrated and like put those two together. From there, I was like, why don't I just roll with this? Like do the whole XX album, take my favorite Biggie songs, figure out what sort of like thematically fits. Um, and didn't expect much of it, but just like sent it to some friends and like got super lucky that like the right people heard it at the right time and kind of spread spread fast from there. <laughs> and it spread so big that that Warner asked you to take it down, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got a cease and desist. That's like any, a, any good sample artist. <laughs> that means it was a hit, right? It was cool. Yeah, man. I mean, so it's funny because like the, the, the bars for success, like... 
uh, for me were like so different than they probably would have been for most other artists. Like I remember checking like BitTorrent sites and seeing that people were hosting it. I was like, okay. that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um, I saw someone like burn copies of it on eBay and was like selling it. It was like, that's awesome. I'm getting like ripped off by somebody. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so it got, um, it got over a million downloads in the first 10 days. And then got the cease and desist from uh, from like the Warner's group that like has the rights to Biggie stuff. Um, and at that point, it was like, okay, it's out there enough that like, you know, I won't host it on my site, but it's sort of, you know, people are yeah, still. kill it. Yeah, exactly. It's like so big that like, because the internet is like spread to, if people want to find it, they can probably still find it today. Yeah. And it's, I'm sure it's all over YouTube still. And yeah. Sound, did you, is it hosted on SoundCloud? It or? was. And then SoundCloud, uh, they did their whole like purge like two years ago. Uh, it kicked off a bunch of DJs that don't have rights to stuff. But every once in a while, there'll be like other DJs who like post it. Right. And sometimes they credit me and sometimes they don't. I'm like, ah, whatever. What are you going to do? Where did Wait What the moniker come mm. from? Uh, in college, I was really into this idea of like things that people say out loud that you never see in literature. Uh-huh. And like it's one thing I, I never see it written down that often. But if you like pay attention, it's one of those things people say, wait, what? A lot just conversationally. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of this like filler when you haven't quite heard someone. Um, and I thought also like it'd be, wouldn't it be smart to like have something that like isn't trite when people hear it. They're like, oh, that's interesting. But then when they start paying attention, they get this almost like sort of recollection or deja vu around it. Um, and so it was like, oh, I had this idea of like, if I do a music project again, maybe I'd call it wait, what? And then that sort of situation where you have like your first demo and you're in iTunes and you're like, ah, oh, what artist name should I do? I'm like, ah, oh, do wait, what? Yeah. And then it just becomes the thing. And, and it, it's, I like the lowercase, no punctuation. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know why I decided on that, but that's always been the aesthetic is like doing that all lowercase. And I think there's something about sort of the evenness. It's like symmetrical. Yeah. And it's also like, wait, what did he mash up? What is this? Yeah, totally. Like, wait, what did, what is this? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sort of giving that like that pause of like just, yeah, initial confusion around like, oh, I like didn't expect that to happen because I know the original song. Um, so yeah, I think, I don't know if I was consciously thinking that at the time, but it's a nice sort of added bonus. So then you toured and did like bamboozle and like tr- yeah. played all over the world with yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So dope. It was really dope. Um, yeah. So bamboozle is probably my favorite show. I was like played all three days there. Um, and it was a year when like Lil Wayne was there, Motley Crue was there. There's actually like, I have to assume it was like a scheduling error where, uh, boys to men played on my stage, but like right before me. So like boys to men had like the seven forty set and I had the eight thirty set. They opened for you. Exactly. So I can always say boys to men open for me, <laughs> which like they probably wouldn't be too excited to, to acknowledge. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, so played bamboozle. That was awesome. It was at uh, giant stadium in New York. Um, and it's cool too. Cause when I play live, I'll play, uh, Two of my like good friends, uh, one's a bassist, one's a drummer, um, and then if I have friends in other cities also play instruments. Sometimes they'll like join. Um, but for that, like one of my best childhood friends, actually this guy Will Paulus, who was also a Sierra Camp guy, he always used to come with me to Sierra Camp. Um, he played drums, and so it was us mm. sort of like you know grew up together since we were like you know three or four years old. I'm like looking back, and there's like thousands of people at Giant Stadium. Like, did you ever think like this would be? our lives at like, you know, 25 years old. That's pretty cool. So it was cool. And then, yeah, basically like took touring as like shows popped up. Like if there were opportunities of places I wanted to travel to or go to, um, and also like get paid to do that. It was like this awesome, like I always loved traveling and then also like meeting people and like all that was super exciting, but it was also happening during, um, when I was in grad school. So I was at business school at Stanford and had all these opportunities to play shows and had to say no to a lot of stuff. Cause it was just mm. like, couldn't balance those two. Yeah. But also like did some crazy stuff. Like I played a show, like I didn't have class on Wednesdays. And so I remember there was this, uh, I took I took a red eye one time, Tuesday night after class, it finished at like 7 p.m., flew to New York, uh, got in, hung out in New York with my friends on like Wednesday, played the show in Brooklyn like till late night on Wednesday and took the 6 a.m. flight back for like class at like noon at Stanford. And I was like, 
it was, it was made for great stories, completely exhausting. Yeah. And like, so, you know, it was weird to be like back on campus and be like, I was only here like 48 hours ago. <laughs> um, but yeah, and then you got to play like Fashion Week in Toronto. I got to play this like, this cool club in Bangkok that was like built out of like an old shipping container and like had these like white walls and mirrors everywhere. And you, I yeah. mean, you were like kind of before EDM broke, you were doing this. Yeah. This, it was almost, it was definitely dance vibey. It was right? dance vibey. Yeah. And yeah. that was always an interesting thing because like the Notorious XX album was like, uh, definitely like the most popular, but also as far as like an energetic live show is now what you think of a DJ playing. So I sort of had this experience of like that record, that album came out and then like was starting to get inquiries about playing shows. Like I better come up with some more music that I can play live. So yeah. then like, I think that came out in like end of March and had like a, a full like 20 track mixtape I released August of that year. Cause I was just like scrambling to be like, I got to put more material out there. And also like, I've always been into more sort of like high energy live shows. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it was really, um, it's funny because I think a lot of what made mashups like popular at that time were like people hadn't really heard hip hop over more electronic stuff. They were always sort of, you know, siloed off from each other. And so it was a cool like marriage between those two. You picked like interesting electronic indie bands, right? Totally. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that was just, it was a reflection of like stuff I was listening to at the time. So it was like, yeah. uh, there's this like MGMT justice mix, uh, that I put like Nas over, um, that I always really like playing that one live. Also like LCD sound system. Um, Yeah. Tons of like more at the time, I guess now that these bands are like more mainstream, but at the time it was like more indie stuff um, to do that. And I was, yeah, it was always like really cool for people to come up to me after shows and be like, oh, like I never heard of this band and now I heard them through your yeah. music. And I was like, that's crazy. One, you never heard of this band, but two, I'm glad that you now found a band that you like. Well, and what I always liked about your stuff is that it was the pieces as whole, at least on your records, whereas yeah. someone like Girl Talk, it was so frantic frenetic which it was awesome also yeah, yeah but yeah. your stuff felt more like compositions you know yeah thanks man well you um, were pre, pre, kind of before girl talk a little bit right yeah i'd say like uh around the same time yeah i think yeah i mean girl talk probably right around that same time but it was like mashing mashing things up was definitely new and yeah mashing up stuff was super new um it was at a time too and i think just not a lot of people knew how to do it um sure. there weren't like tutorials online and so i kind of just like figured it out um and it was actually cool because like I remember a lot of people would like email me to be like, Hey, how do you make this? Or like, uh, and so I was like, Oh, now I can like pass that on of like, <laughs> I learned this and here you can do it too. It's not that hard. <laughs> Good job, man. Uh, yeah, no, you, you led the way on that one. <laughs> and, um, so where did, where did it, I remember like when you told me you were going to get your MBA, mm -hmm. I was like, this dude can do anything. <laughs> what made you, what inspired you to go do that? And yeah. Um, you had to take the GMAT test. I take the GMAT. Yeah. Uh, write some essays. Yeah. Um, I'd always really want to start a company. And like this idea of like building a company was always something that was all like from like an early like teenage age was like, I really want to start something and start a company. Um, and I think that came from sort of like have some kind of like impacts on the world. Like I think one of the things that always like terrified me was just like working a job that basically is like a paycheck and you sort of end up doing like middle management for something you just don't care that much about. And so, yeah. How, and you worked at Google before, right? I was at Google before. It was an awesome place, super smart people. Yeah. Um, really like enjoyed that a lot, but also had this kind of like desire to like branch out from that and sort of saw a path. Of, like if I do want to start something, I could either stick around Google for like seven, eight years and kind of like hop between, um, you know, sort of different, uh, different roles or, you know, actually go between companies. And this was, you know, my like 23 year old logic. So who knows if it was actually true. <laughs> uh, but I was like, or I get my MBA and like, maybe that's a way sort of get like a just quick hit samples of like marketing and accounting and finance. And also Stanford has like an awesome design school. Um, and so like gaining like those tactical skills. Cause I imagine what I'd be building would probably be, um, like something digital would be like an app or a website or something that like required the, that skill set. Um, 
And so, yeah, very much went into this idea of like, I want to go here to um, meet a co-founder, co-founders and start a company and yeah, go that route. <laughs> and I remember you saying like you you went to Africa to see like the stock exchange or something. Yeah. Oh, that's a great memory. You told me about that. I was yeah, like, yeah. That that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that's an awesome memory. I yeah. can't really remember that. Um That's cool. Yeah. I was in Nairobi. Um this was like we have these like um international trips. Like one of the big things there is like they really encourage you to like explore internationally and it's sort of this a unique time where you're you have the the freedom to like explore these things. And also like, I mean, similar to the thing, um, and sort of being an undergrad and being able to like meet a bunch of bands and go to shows. Like there are certain doors that open for you when you're a student that don't when you're not. And so I think like one of the things that was awesome is like when we took this trip, it was, you know, like two weeks between uh, Kenya and Rwanda um, of like the types of people we could meet and um, like converse with and understand like how they thought about the world. Um, those doors opened up like so much more probably than they would now if I like took that trip. And so, yeah, there's probably like 20 of us and uh, went to the, the Nairobi Stock Exchange um, and yeah, just like got to talk to these people who are just have lived lives like just so vastly different from mine that I found that just incredibly fascinating. And they speak English in Nairobi or, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm at least the business people we spoke with, uh, all did. And then actually one of the funny things was, um, from there we went to Rwanda and we're like going to like some club one night and I emailed the club owner, like maybe the day before to be like, Hey, like I'm American DJ. Like, I don't know if you got anything going on tomorrow night, but would, like love to spin a set and like send on my website, which like had like you know, some good stuff on it. Some like photos of shows had like a decent resume. This is like pre bamboozle, but still had like enough there that it wasn't just like some kid. Yeah. Um, and he was like, absolutely would love to have. And then I go there and like, there's like a sign outside. that's like one night American DJ. Wait, what? And I was like, <laughs> Oh, I made it. Uh, and so I got to DJ this club in Kigali and like, didn't have any of my like DJ stuff. So it was really like going off like an old PC they had there and like yeah. trying to mix like with anyway, it was this whole like funny thing. But then I got to put like Kigali Rwanda on my like tour schedule of like, right. you know, <laughs> you're, you're fearless. Yeah. You're it's like, fearless. why not? It's funny. Cause like we were talking before about like, this idea of like, um, I think a lot of people like they don't want to try new things because like we're so afraid of failing at things and like we're afraid that people are going to not like it. And like I think the problem is like in school, like we're we're taught to optimize for like batting average, right? Of like you're always trying to like, you know, whatever's on your plate, like you're trying to do the most with that. And like when you get into the real world, it's like the size of your plate is not defined. Like you actually shouldn't be going for batting average. You go for like total like hits or home runs or whatever the analogy is. And so like people forget your failures pretty quickly and you're probably going to realize like if you're failing at something and like there's actually, I think, very little shame in failing at something that, you know, you should realize is not for you and like go on to the next thing. Um, and people, I think overall, we have a tendency to be so scared of failure. We don't actually try enough things out. And so, you know, if I sent that email to that guy and he's like, no, who are you? I mean, you're not going to play this club. It's like, oh, that's a bummer. But like, forget it a week later, two days later. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And nope. so like, well, yeah, why not? Like, go for it. The worst thing is you're back where you started. Exactly. Why not ask? Exactly. That's kind of how I've always approached collabs. Yeah. While I've gotten like guests, guests like some of my heroes on my album. Totally. You've got incredible people. You've got like <laughs> KRS. You've got Weird Al. Like your your collection is like incredible. It's like thank you, man. I appreciate <laughs> it. But I have the same philosophy as you. It's like, well, what are they? Gonna, if they say no, that's fine. Yeah. You know, just just either with Sage Francis, you know, I always loved him as an MC and yeah. he was really clear with me that like I sent him so many ideas and he was like, well, you know, I'm, you know, maybe not this, but, but hit me up. And yeah. I sent him like five, I pitched five things to him. And every time he said no to me, it was always no, but send me what you have next time. Yeah. And, and that was like a cool lesson that, you know, I appreciate his honesty and it made me also be realize that, um, 
it's good to really tailor the project to the person you're pitching to. You yeah. Know? And then, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Like you being the American, like hyping that up. I'm in. For right, right. Yeah. Yeah, totally. It's like, yeah, go with the angle that you think is going to work best and make sure that that doesn't compromise. Like you got to find that, that balance, right? Between making sure you're doing something that's authentic to you, but also like works for the person you're working with. So like, yeah. Like whether it's the Tigali Rana show or working with Sage Francis. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, you did the fundraiser for the 826 Valencia yeah. project, right? Yeah, yeah, Great memory. Um, yeah, I've done a couple things with them. So I've done some mixtapes where it's like a pay what you want model. Um, all the cash goes to them. And uh, for anyone who doesn't know, it's like, it's Dave Eggers, who is an author. He did uh, Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius. And since then, I think 15 years ago, 16 years ago, he started this awesome uh, nonprofit called 826 Valencia um, that's probably going to butcher this exact wording, but it's basically uh, the premise is the, um, that you can give uh, kids a leg up by teaching them good writing skills early on. And that's something that they see is like a big disparity between um, sort of kids from different backgrounds is just not having a lot of basic writing skills. And so you can give kids a lot of confidence, whether it's you know writing English essays or writing personal statements or whatever it is, um, by giving them the ability to write. And so that's what uh, they're focused on. It's a lot of in-school and after-school tutoring um, based mostly on writing and also some like general tutoring. Um, but they're awesome. They're like super cool people. Um, they're now in like a bunch of cities across the U S um, a lot of volunteers. I've also like done some volunteer work of like tutoring kids. And it's just like, it's a really cool. That's awesome. Yeah. It's just, it's a really cool, um, institution and is one of those that like, I always feel really good about, you know, writing that check to, you know, donate proceeds of an album. And it's also a cool thing too, to like people like, they, uh, it's a pay what you want. So people want to say zero, they can say, you know, five bucks. There's actually a guy, um, this was like four years ago who like bought it for a thousand bucks. And I was like, that's incredible. Like, and wow. just like, yeah, just, yeah. Including the next check to a two six. It was awesome that like, and it's like, you know, wrote him a super nice email. I don't even know if he wrote me back. He's probably just like, yeah, you know, like the music fine enough, but here's a good way to like donate to a two six. And knowing then, I guess because you're sampling stuff, it's donation. So it's not. Yeah. It, as it far as I know. That, yeah. That. I mean, I'm just, Yeah taking the money from one spot to another and not, you you're know, not profit it. in it. Yeah. And I guess legally it's just like you're making these artistic pieces to promote this nonprofit. Yeah. And you're using it to raise awareness. Basically solicit donations to a nonprofit. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I like to think that it's, um, you know, those are, they're separate enough that someone's like an appreciator of music and then like it's using that as a vehicle to sort of fuel donations to, to the nonprofit. And then you played the show with Hoodie Allen, right? Yeah, yeah. Because you worked with him at Google? Yeah, it was actually funny. So we were both, um, at the time, like both of our claims to fame were like, we had both had uh, number one songs on Hype Machine. Shout out Hype Machine. That's like, I love that service. Um, they like, I think when I look at like things that happened in that like crazy 10 day period after my album came out, hitting number one on Hype Machine was like the moment that gave me chills. Like, I can't believe that like, this is a thing. Like that was like far above and beyond like whatever happened i was like this is crazy i remember like screenshotting it taking a backup of that screenshot having a screenshot <laughs> on my phone like i was like yeah. i'm not dreaming pinching myself this is cool like i'm at the top the top of hype machine anyway so we both hit the top of hype machine like recently like, then like I, mean, I hit it with like the first single for my mixtape which was like two weeks a week before the show he'd hit it for like one of his first singles uh like a month earlier um and so i hit him up on like literally like google like internal chat to be like yo i made this record I'm trying to put a show together. And this is the first show I ever put together as, wait, what? I'd done like the rap shows before, but this is the first real one. Um, I had my, my friend Will, who's playing drums with me, at this spot like on Polk Street. And like we were really just like running by the seat of our pants and being like, oh, I guess we should figure out like what do we use to sell tickets? Like do we need to hire security? Like what's there an appropriate like split with the venue? Like is there any chance we're going to get like a portion of like drink sales? So we think our friends are probably like over-indexed on like drinks compared to their typical crowd. 
Um, and so there are all these sort of decisions like figuring out like very real time. And he was awesome. He's like a super cool, like just like really ran with it. Um, he uh, was selling some merch. I was selling some merch. Um, I actually like DJed his set before. And so I remember we met like the night before in my apartment and I was, you know, like 24 and he was like 22. He'd like done some shows before, but I think it was his first San Francisco show. And he'd like just started at Google. So he's like inviting some of his coworkers who like don't know that he's like this really dope rapper. Um, he does his set. Um, he like crushes it. It was super fun DJing for him. Um, and then, yeah, I did my set. It was just, you know, I'd like, you know, my parents there and like family there and a bunch of friends and like a bunch of like random people. It was like, I think that was the first time I'd played music where it's like people who I didn't know were like the majority of people who showed up, which felt like that was a really cool feeling. That felt like a moment. I don't, I don't know if you remember like when that happened for you. That's cool. That like you, what you had created had this physical corporeal presence. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's cool, man. Yeah. yeah. Cause it's one thing like seeing sort of numbers of stuff, but actually like this meant enough to people to like go out. It was like a Monday night show. Wow. Um, to like, you know, spend their Monday night with you. Um, which was just, yeah, it's super flattering when people do that. Well, and w- so that was what, like 2008? Uh, 2010. Okay. It was, yeah. So it was August, 2010. Um, yeah. Cause it was right after that's that first mixtape came out. Oh, right. Okay. And then, and then after that, that's when, were you applying to grad school yet? Or yeah, it- dude. So, okay. Here's the story is I had like, I think my last day of work at Google was the Friday before and I was starting grad school, like orientation on that Wednesday. So I had a very small window to get this show in. Um, and I was just like, I remember I stuck around at Google, like I think, and I was also putting out the mixtape that same day. So I was like that weekend, I was like heads down, finishing the mixtape, um, released it that day. Um, you know, did my whole like send stuff to press outlets, like try and like generate some buzz. Um, earlier that week, I released a single and hit the number one spot on Hype Machine and then played the show. And then like, you know, 36 hours later, I'm like sitting at Stanford doing like orientation. Um, Double lives. Yeah. Triple lives, I yeah, guess. Yeah, I guess too. so. Yeah, triple lives. Um, but yeah, so I, that was right before I started at Stanford because that was like as I was getting a lot more show offers. It was basically as business school was starting and for like the next two years. I remember when I visited you once, like we had lunch at that's the Seinfeld Diner. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And uh, that which was near Columbia, right? Totally. It's like uh, Tom's, right, like three blocks away. And um, something crazy about that is that you know that Suzanne Vega song. That, yeah, that was I heard that was the first when they were inventing the MP3 compression. They yes. used that as the baseline for the voice. Oh, crazy! So it's kind of cool that there's that this is total tangent, but like yeah. that connection to technology and music there near. Columbia that this song Suzanne Vega wrote. But the reason I brought that up, I brought back this memory is when I visited you there and we were walking around Columbia and everyone said hi to you. <laughs> everyone knew you. And I was like, this dude is like, this dude is, is, is beloved by his peers. <laughs> and, and so how did, how did it feel like, did Stanford have a similar friendliness? Yeah. Yeah, it did. I think actually it's funny. You must've caught me on like a, a lucky day at Columbia. I mean, I like had friends there and people were super nice. Um, but yeah, I found it even more so at Stanford of like, I think part of it's the weather, part of it is like you're a little older. So like when you're like 18 to 22, at least for me, and like I feel like a lot of people I know at that age, there's a little bit of like a too cool for schoolness of like there's something about like if you meet someone new, like are you you are inherently going to have like a positive vibe or a negative vibe towards them. And there's also probably something about like New York versus the Bay Area of like people are a little like hardened sometimes in New York. And also the type of like crowd that Columbia probably attracts is going to be more likely to be that kind of like too cool for schoolers at Stanford when people were like, I think I was like 25 and everyone else, it was like people between like 25, and like early thirties. Um, it's just a little more like comfortable in their skin and like everyone's outside all the time and just generally probably like happier. Um, so yeah, I totally found that people at Stanford were super supportive. Um, I'd say the only downside would be like, 
there's like 400 people in your class. You're really trying to get to know everybody. And like my thing was like the DJ. And so, yeah, like, I, you know, I like doing that. But also as anyone, like you sort of contain multitudes. You're not trying to just have your, you know, your one thing you're known for. Yeah, right, right. And and that, um, that's a cool inroad for people to get to know you, right? Because sure people knew about that. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And it was funny. I remember like before I started actually some of like the friends I made early on were like, People, uh, we had this blog where it's like people are posting music and I saw that like this guy who was like a second year then had like posted some of my stuff and then I met with him. I was like, oh, by the way, like I made this record and he was like really stoked about that. Um, and he had this like super impressive, um, he had a super impressive like record of like, he uh, was like one of these like Red Bull DJs. He did like the Red Bull DJ Academy and got to play like a show in Ibiza and like do all this awesome stuff that I'd never like come close to. So it was like, it was funny being at Stanford where it's like, Everyone's there like for business school, but people have these like really eclectic backgrounds, like cool stuff that they've done. Um, so that was an awesome part of it. And I think Stanford always is like, it's eclectic. They want to take eclectic people. Totally. Cool I think, stories. yeah. It, like it's, I think Stanford likes kind of like smart weirdos. Yeah. Um, which is like my like bread and butter crowd. Like I'm always like right. really into people who are smart weirdos. So it was a, it was a good mix for me. So what was it like uh, building Kronos? And yeah. that whole chapter. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was um, basically went to Stanford, met my co-founder uh, Dylan there. Um, we started this company like the day after graduation. Again, sort of like going from one thing like right into the other. We were like at the office at like you know seven a.m. like the the day after graduation. Um, and so Kronos was based on this premise of like uh, we're really bad at knowing how we spend our time. And like while that sounds on the surface like oh that's like kind of a problem, like we saw it as this more like greater threat of like if you don't spend your time in a way that's meaningful to you, you can like in a lot of ways, like waste a lot of your life. Right. And like, um, I studied psych undergrad and like seeing how we make these short-term decisions that we, uh, are not necessarily in our like long-term best interests. Right. And so like we interviewed a lot of people and we noticed that like by age, um, much older people, like their time is so valuable, valuable to them of like, they only spend their time doing stuff that they want to do. Whereas younger people, it's like, you know, we would like watch Netflix for like an hour or two each night. And like, yeah, that doesn't seem like a big thing, but like you do that every night for like 40 years. And that's like, we're talking about like all the cool stuff you could have done that wasn't that. Um, and so we were interviewing people and like, Hey, like tell us how you spend your week. It's like 168 hours. And like, just tell us like how many hours you spend sleeping and working. And basically even the most like self-aware people, maybe they'd get to like a hundred hours and there'd be like 68, it'd be like 70 hours. They just had no idea where it went. And that's like kind of a terrifying thing when you think about like, you know, 70 hours a week, multiplied by a year is, you know, it's like, it's a lot of time. It's like 3,500 hours that you just have no idea where they went every year. Mm. And so it's based on this premise of like, time is our most valuable resource. Um, we have no good way of really measuring our time besides like a very manual way, which is like unrealistic for people to like make a spreadsheet for most people. Um, and so what if instead uh, we could basically, you know, if people want to lose weight, you have a scale, you have something to track it. If we could basically be the scale for understanding how you spend your time. So we built this app that you download the app, you carry, in your, you carry your phone with you, and it would tell you, here's how much you sleep, here's how much you work, you work out, uh, you spend at home when you have like uh, friends or like significant other on the app, how much time you spend with that person, and like what types of variety of locations. Um, and basically, yeah, starting in like 2012, we really uh, hammered down on this idea of like, how can we help people live more intentionally? That was sort of the, the root of it. Do you, it seems like the, the new screen time thing is inspired by that maybe. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's cool because I think there's been a lot of um, awareness about this now. At the time, a lot of people were just sort of like, oh, like, it's interesting, but like, why would I care about this? Yeah. Like, um, and so, yeah, I think now that's become a lot more mainstream, this awareness of like, oh, man, if I spend like three hours, four hours plus on my phone every day, like, that's real time. And like, 
there's so much other stuff I could be doing that's not that. And like this idea of like technology addiction or um, seeing the compounding effects of like these sort of everyday like micro decisions that we make um, has a huge impact of like what your relationships are like with your friends, your family, your significant other. Um, it has a huge impact on your passions of like how many people that, you know, that I know, I'm sure that you probably know that are like our age now. And like, they were really passionate about something 10 years ago and kind of just like left it by the wayside for not really any good reason besides just like kind of stop doing it. Yeah. Um, and so trying to make sure those things don't happen. As your life is an example of someone who really didn't. I try not to. <laughs> as a productive person making an app about productivity with your co with your co-creator, that's like yeah. a cool, very appropriate thing. Yeah. Yeah. It was really, I mean, he's an awesome guy. He's one of my best friends. Um, and so it was awesome. I mean, we were making this app together. And one of the ironies of it is like we're sort of heads down spending so much time making this app that like we'd check our own time. We're like, man, we spend like just so much time together. And like he um, he pretty early on was uh, dating a woman who's like now his wife and like would look at his data. And it's like, I would spend so much more time with Dylan than Kate would get to. <laughs> and I was like, sorry, Kate. Like, I'm sorry that your boyfriend now husband is spending like 14 hours a day with me. <laughs> But you guys sold it, right? We did. We sold yeah. it. So we uh, we sold it after about three years um, to a company called Life360, which they are the leading like family network app. And so they basically took a lot of uh, the design and technology that we built, and we worked on incorporating that into their app. Uh, with the idea being like they are using a lot of the same sort of technology and like uh, design paradigms for different audience, and that's like basically for like family management. So it's like for a husband or wife to like know that their kids made it safely to school. Um, one of the other things we ended up building uh, once we joined uh, was integrating this software that figured out driving behavior. So it's like a huge anxiety for parents is like first time drivers. Um, and so if they have the app downloaded, like if they somebody got into an accident, uh, the app would know that. And in some cases, like if, you know, sort of go through this uh, series of decisions and like see if the person was OK, if it didn't seem like it, they'd automatically call emergency services uh, to you know, help that person out. So like whether they weren't moving or something. Yeah. Basically yeah. if there's like high impacts, so you use the accelerometer on the phone to figure out like, where you going like 50 miles an hour and then down to zero, like really fast. And then like didn't move after that. And then we try and like message the phone. If you didn't respond to that, like message, um, like other family members. And then like, then, you know, you want to make sure you're not like accidentally calling ambulances. Uh, but yeah, there's this whole sort of like decision tree that we tried to also like do that quickly enough that like we could, you know, get there in time wow. um, for, for an accident. So it was cool. Like, I think one of the big things is like they had scale. There was like so much more than what we had. So it was really rewarding to actually take this stuff that we built and then see it go out to like tens of millions of people. And like, I remember the day we launched that, uh, that driving behavior feature, it's like, we're just amassing. Like all these people now are like able to like have this in their lives. Yeah. Uh, that sort of like more peace of mind about like, you know, letting their teenager have more freedom and like drive and, and not be so concerned about it all the time because you sort of have this, um, you have this app that helps them, helps out with that. You know, Charlie, it's like great artists are people who are flexible with their mediums. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And, and I think it's like people who don't just do one thing, right? Mm. And it's like, this is, you thought of a problem, you solved it, you found a creative solution, you made it elegant in that it, on a design level, it's functional and, and kind of invisible. Yeah. And you must feel proud of all these different like things you've experimented with that have really all reached and come to fruition. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Thanks, man. Uh, I am really proud of that stuff. I think it's, um, it's funny cause it's like, you know, I don't take a lot of time. I think a lot of people don't take a lot of time to sort of think back on their like back catalog of stuff. So it's fun, like having a conversation like this and like remembering these like details of it. Like, yeah, yeah it's like all that stuff, um, is yeah, it's, it's so exciting when you're going through it and it's fun, like recollect on it and like, remember what that was like. 
Um, but you know, there's also, there's tons of stuff too, where it's like you try something and it doesn't work and it's, it sort of goes back to that. Like you're not trying to optimize for batting average, like optimize for the stuff that makes you happy, that resonates with people, that sort of gives you fulfillment and also like makes the world a better place. But it's cool to look back, right? And think about like, oh, yeah. think about like, um, yeah, be, being fearless, right? And totally. how that pays off. Yeah. What, what's it like being, working and having all these ties to Silicon Valley? And I'm going to preface this saying, I just feel like being in New York and, you know, having left the Bay and I come back here, I feel this, there's a lot of like resentment and negativity about the tech culture in the Bay and the San Francisco, especially. And as someone who's, you know, yeah. done, created things like, how does that feel? And do you feel like it's, it's, it's earned or do you feel like it's, it's off point? And, you know, I think both. Um, so yeah, I think it's a, a complicated thing. Yeah. Um, I do think that there are a lot of, uh, bad actors in like tech generally who like, they feel very entitled to a space that frankly, like is, doesn't belong to them and think that like the nature of a place belonging to you is if you can afford it. And so we should like, if you let market uh, dynamics play out, like it, you know, to them logically makes sense. You price people out of their homes and like, that's why things are changing. But it, I think if ironically, like even if someone had that sort of morphed worldview, which I think unfortunately a good number of people do, I don't think it's everyone in tech. And I think it's actually, um, a smaller minority than it's made out to be, um, within the tech community, but even for them, like, I think if they sort of play that out to his logical conclusion is like, I don't think anyone wants to live, or at least not many people, I think want to live in a totally homogenous area, right? Like the mission now is like so different than it was even 10 years ago. Um, and frankly, there are much fewer artists. There are like probably fewer like music venues. Um, there's a lot, like just less interesting stuff going on. So ironically, it's like, I think people, the reason why it's popular is because people want to live in like an artsy, cool, hip neighborhood. But it's not that hip if like everyone who lives in your neighborhood all works at Google. Um, and isn't a star DJ or rapper. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's very complicated. I think I don't have an answer for it. Yeah. Um, I do think that there are like, I think there are a lot of people in tech and other industries that really do care a lot about the neighborhoods they live in. I think one of the interesting things that um, I think would be great is like um, giving people like clear lanes and avenues to like, give back to their neighborhoods um, and give back to like local artist communities. Like I think uh, Patreon is like not necessarily doing it like on a local level, but like creating a new financial model where it's like, if you really care about an artist, like you can basically, I mean, you can be like a patron of theirs and like have some like subscription thing. So it's not just this like hit space business of like, you know, you sell albums like right when it comes out or like you have to go on tour to make any kind of money, but like can like consistently put out products, like a core group of fans who like are going to really care about it. Um, which like, you know, was not something that existed like four or five years ago. And shout out to them because that is, they allow me to pay my rent and pay my bills. Totally. And not tour as much. Yeah. Which is, makes it like, you're talking about like trying to do very impactful shows. Yeah. Like, like yeah. Patreon is a good example of something that's made the world better for Absolutely. art. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because I do think a lot of, I mean, and shout out to my Patreon supporters. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think a lot of, uh, there is a lot of tech that's like concerned about trying to make, um, to, you know, make, uh, art more accessible. I mean, especially like music startups, like I was working at Pandora for a while, uh, Spotify. Um, I think any of these companies, there are certainly, uh, some issues with like amount of money artists are getting from them. But I do think it has overall, um, my theory is if you look at how much money top performing artists are making, it's probably like slowed down a little bit, but I think in like a pre Pandora Spotify era, like you didn't have this like middle class of musicians. Like there wasn't a way you either were like eating or you weren't. And like, 
it was really hard to be like a middling musician who was like having to like press CDs or like be signed to a major. Like there's so many gates to actually making money. Or live on the road. Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. Like you get your van and you're just like on the road all the time. Um, and, there's, but there's no way to like monetize like all that work you've done because you're basically in like a service industry then, right? Yeah. And, and that was Tom's going back to network. He had a book he recommended, The Long Tail. Yeah. Which was kind of predicted that model of. It's a great book. Of, of the middle class musicians. Yeah. And, 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 you know, it's funny, man, because it's like things change for the better. I think for art, if you, if you go out and do it yeah. and you are like make high quality stuff and you don't quit yeah. and looking at YouTubers who like make a living off that, like it is, it is a brighter world. And I guess there's this question of people who are disimp- uh, like disenfranchised, whether they're forgotten, but I think it's like, the idea, the main ethos behind hip hop is giving people the tools to create and tell their stories and do something from nothing, right? Totally. And so it's just, I think it has a lot to do with your intentions and your belief in yourself. And, mm-hmm. you know, we can say this as privileged people, I guess, who, who've done well, but also the tools are there, yeah. you know, too. I mean, you have to take a chance. Things don't just come to you. It's totally. both examples of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think... I think it still has like quite a ways to go, but I do think it's gotten a lot better as far as on two fronts, especially. And one is uh, the cost of creating music is like, I mean, if you have a barrier of paying like hundreds of dollars for studio time, like that's a very small percentage of people that are able to do that. Um, And now it's like you buy a mic, you have a laptop, you have like, you know, cheap or free software and like you can put something out. And then the second part is distribution. Like you don't need to press CDs and have them in like tower or warehouse. Like you can just put it on SoundCloud or like you put it on Spotify. Um, and so those two things, I think, have like they've opened the floodgates in such a way that I think there are certainly some negative ramifications from that. Mm-hmm. But net net, I think it's a very positive thing for music to just give more people more access, uh, both on like the creation side and the the distribution side. And someone like you who just loves music, it's allowed you to do your art and have be like a Renaissance man. <laughs> One of the things I always love was your um your mixtapes of your favorite songs. Like oh yeah. You'd give a tape to a friend. Yeah. And it, you, do you do those still like every quarter? Yeah. Yeah. Good, uh, good memory. Yeah. So I like, when I started driving, uh, I remember I'd make, I'd make a mix for like my car and I had yeah. friends in there and they'd be like, Oh, this is cool. And I was like, for whatever reason, I'd like put like, uh, like movie skit, like skits from movies as like the intro. And I'd like, I think growing up listening to a bunch of like rap albums, like skits were always a thing to like break up the album. And because I had a bunch of genres, I have some hip hop, I have some indie rock, I had, you know, whatever, some singer songwriter, there's like no convenient transition to go from like a mortal technique to like bright eyes. So I was like, I got to put the skit in there to break it up. And so they kind of became these like mixtapes and yeah, to like actually um, like burn CDs, give them out to people. Um, and now it's funny cause like you hand someone a CD and like most people don't even have like a CD player at home or like in their laptop to like play it with. But yeah, I, I did that for every month for like 10 years, which actually has this awesome effect of like, I hear, any of those songs and I can like place like that time in my life. Like, cool. Oh, that was going on that month of that year. Yeah. And do you, you still do it? Right. Yeah. So I do it now like more quarterly and yeah. it's like a Spotify mix. Um, okay. you know, you got to change with the times. <laughs> <laughs> I was always excited when some of my jams would make your mixes. Oh dude. Yeah. You've got a, a storied history of appearances on the mixes. That's actually, it'd, it'd be cool to look back and like see like the original, um, yeah, all the stuff that uh, that made it from like the early days of, of stuff going on. And like how your taste evolved too, right? I'm sure you yeah. would go back and your friends too, like these little time capsules. Totally. And I think one of the cool things though about taste is like, I still, like there's some stuff that I don't listen to as much anymore now, but when I listen to it, like I don't think if I heard it for the first time, I necessarily appreciate it today, but I do have like, like a relationship with that music that gives me that like nostalgic feel of like, oh, I remember what it was like listening to music when I was like 17. 
Um, and so it's funny now that a lot of these bands, like I saw um, Taking Back Sunday play like a year ago. And it's like, I don't listen to a bunch of Taking Back Sunday anymore. Like Thursday had like a reunion show like a year ago. Like listening to these bands, like they're not what I listen to like daily now, but I can still like go to those shows, listen to that music and like have a really strong sense of like, I really love listening to this now. Probably mostly because it's like what I remember feeling and like listening to at that time. Uh, yeah. So I still have an appreciation for it. And I think that's why people like your mashups is because they remember both of those. Yeah. Either the new music and everyone remembers Biggie and it's yeah, like yeah. a very disorienting but like fun feeling. Yeah, I right? hope so. I, that'd be a really cool effect if it does have that effect on people. So th- is the Nas Dat was your last one? Did I pronounce that right? Yeah, you pronounced that right. Uh, that was a bit ago. So that was, uh, it was Nas with this band Washed Out. Mm-hmm. And so I sort of rotate between doing these like this sort of like single artist versus single artist for the full album. Yeah. Um, and so that was the follow-up to the Biggie record. Um, but yeah, so that was uh, a couple years back. And then recently, the last thing I did was this like series of like seasonal EPs. And so the idea of like sort of like changing with the times is like understanding that people, like they're not sitting down to listen to like 60 minute records anymore. And so rather than doing one of those, like every year, every couple of years, like doing sort of smaller bite size, like release a single and release like batches of like five songs. Okay. Um, and so actually, yeah. Is that I, these uh, frame things? Yeah. So, um, yeah. Pointing. Okay. So we're busy. We're all busy, but good. That's something people That's say. That's the first one. Yeah. I mean, I guess. <laughs> uh, volume two. Yeah. Volume three. Sorry for the delayed response. <laughs> Number four. Asking for a friend. Yeah. It's great, man. Thanks, man. I, and you design, obviously you design those. Covers. Yeah. So I designed all these. Um, it takes, uh, there's like pretty liberal inspiration from, um, both I think it was RCA records in the seventies had this kind of like format of like design of the album covers and the weekend also for his, um, house of balloons and like that series of EPs that he had, uh, used a similar design. And so I knew I wanted to make this like seasonal collection. Um, and so made them, uh, made two of them and then waited like a year or two and then made the final two, um, and made them. So went fall, winter, spring, and then summer was the one that came out most recently, uh, about a year and change ago. That's cool. So yeah, they were fun. And like just messing with like weird art and like also those like turns of phrase, like each one of those are things that sort of fall in that same genre of like, wait, what as a, as a phrase that people, when people say these things, I hope that they like think of, uh, they think of the record. Yeah, and I we're all busy but good. Like when I was setting up, I saw that I smiled. Yeah, that's the bay, right? That's so real, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I was reading this thing recently about like um, it's a fairly like recent thing that uh, busyness is equated to like importance. And so I found that like I mean it's like holiday season now. Like you ask anyone you haven't seen for a while like how they've been, they're like I'm busy but but good. And you're like it's such a trope of like why do we keep saying this? Like why is it such a good thing to be busy? If only there were an app to help figure out why <laughs> why we're so busy to but. not be so busy. <laughs> yeah. Um I don't know. It's yeah. I think it's it's one of these things that like I don't think being busy I think it can be good. I think it can not be good, but I think there's this thing of like it's almost this way to like not so subtly communicate to people that what you're doing is important and it matters. Um and like there's I was just saying like there's this thing of like in if you if we transported to like Renaissance era and you ask like a, like a gentleman about town if he's like how he's doing you say oh have you been busy that'd be a very insulting thing um, because the implication is that like the ultimate luxury uh, is having free time right. and which it kind of still is except there's still this emphasis right on like um, being important is like correlated to um, being busy and so people always say that they're busy or there's this thing. Well, I, I'm busy. I've been, been binge watching 
exactly. this thing, right? Exactly. Like, and like, how busy, how busy were you during that bench? <laughs> like you have to do everything hardcore. Yeah. And, and media has kind of forced, yeah, that kind of bragging. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know. And I, I, I think, you know, you look at that in our culture, going back to our kind of like this culture in the American culture of, of hard work until yeah. you can't work anymore. And thinking about English and Spanish, if you're a businessman, you're hombre de negocios. Yeah. You, yeah, yeah. you negotiate things. You're not yeah. busy running around. Right. You negotiate. Oh, I like that. Leisurely, I thought about that. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And so it's like, it's, that's, that's ingrained into our culture and how we speak. Totally. And so I, I like that because your phrases are, you're, they're purposeful because they make you ask questions and yeah, you know, are you, so do you do, you still do these quarterly things? I haven't. So I yeah. sort of finished this set, but I'm, yeah, I need to think of what I want to do next. Um, cause I, I did like doing this sort of this form factor. It's also, um, it let me like just pick more like recent stuff and kind of like put them out and like, you know, not have the pressure of like putting out before when I put out a mixtape, it was basically going with that old format of filling up like a full CDs worth of music. So I'd have like a 80 minute mixtape, which like was cool to have, but it's also, I think anytime you put out art, you need to think about like how much attention you're demanding of the listener or of the audience, right? Like if I send you a video, I'm like, yo, this is hilarious. And it's like a 19 minute YouTube video. You're like, this better be like really funny. Versus if I send you like a 10 second clip, you're like, oh, that was pretty good. Hence, right? hence why Instagram was, is such a smash. Cause totally. it's, it's our finite attention. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's another thing is just like how much, uh, when we're talking about why people, like, I don't think people are lying when they say that they've been busy as much as one, there's sort of this like cultural ingraining from like media influence, but also it's like how we consume media of like, our attention spans, I think I was reading something that our average attention span has gone down from like, I think it was like 12 seconds, to like eight seconds, which like, that's a pretty massive like percentage change. And what happens is like, you feel exhausted by feeling this, like these pulls of your attention going everywhere. And so it feels very busy, even though it's like looking at your phone, looking at Netflix, texting someone like that's not actually, you shouldn't be busy doing that, but it feels like you're busy because your attention is constantly being pulled in all these different directions. Yeah, that's a good point. And like, I wonder living in San Francisco, do you feel, you know, you're surrounded by beauty and like one yeah. of the most beautiful places on the planet. Do you feel more chill or do you feel like you, you feel everyone's successful, frantic energy? What is your experience? Yeah, I'd like to say I feel chill. I feel like pretty chill. I'm like pretty, pretty happy in life. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, I think it's interesting because like at some point you realize like success um, is sort of this factor of like natural talent and hard work and luck and I think people disagree often. And it's like different for everyone, like how much each one contributes to their success. Um, but really like the the only one of those you control is hard work, right? Like it's giving yourself the most opportunities. Um, and like you can, you know, improve at things like via hard work. Um, have you ever read this book, Grit? The It's like this Angela Duckworth book. And it's basically about like why, um, why you look at when people are successful, like why actually hard work matters like doubly more than other traits because mm. basically your skill um, I'm like paraphrasing this, but like your skill in something, you have some inherent like talent you're born with. Um, but hard work is also like contributes to like increasing that skill. So like not only does like hard work in the moment contribute to like your future success, but like your previous hard work has contributed to your ongoing skill. Right. And so it's almost, it's like this double dipping with hard work, but like regardless, like those three things contribute and like getting, uh, jealous or comparing yourself to someone else's success. Like maybe the thing we should be doing is like comparing like how hard we work and how smart we're working. Um, I think actually that's maybe even a more important thing is like how smart we're working because otherwise you get into this thing of like people, it's almost like the busyness stuff, right? Like, like people are like, oh, I worked like a 14 hour day or like I'm yeah. working so hard. And it's like, well, like 
you don't have good life balance, like you're going to burn yourself out. And like, that's not a good thing either. Or I think a lot of indie artists get into, get into this pattern where they're working hard, mm -hmm. making music, their career might not necessarily be growing. Yeah. So they double down on the maniacal touring right. and, and like the merch and getting kind of like jaded in versus being smart about it and doing right. things you care about when yeah. you want to do them yeah. and making sure you're always like trying new things. Totally. And I think the irony of doing, I think a lot of people I've seen fall into that, whether it's like business or music or whatever it is of like trying to sort of like outsmart the system and be like, okay, here's what I should do to like get this goal that I want. And what they do is they actually just shift what their downside is because your downside if you fail at that is like you weren't authentic to yourself and you also like aren't getting the result you wanted. Whereas like if you're doing stuff that's authentic to yourself and you're trying new things and like you're continuing to grow uh, as an artist or, you know, as a person in whatever your sort of line of work is, your downside is that like it didn't work out, but you've built this skill set and you're like proud of the stuff you're doing and you're building. Um, and there's still that chance that like, and probably even a better chance and people realize that it'll work out when you sort of stick with the path that means more to you. Um, because you're less likely to be so concerned about like hitting those numbers or like trying to, I think anytime you see people just like heads down trying to optimize for some sort of outcome based thing that's like numbers based, um, as soon as they start changing their formula up and it's like no longer authentic to them, it's like, I think people should try new ideas. But once you've like crossed that border from like, this matters to me, this is authentic to me to like, I'm doing this just for that result. I think you see like it's pretty rare those people succeed, mm. um, and especially not long term. You might like change it up and like get this one like huge hit, um, but those people generally don't have repeated success. You know, it's that's a great point. And I remember when I um, one time I was talking to Weird Al, and I was yeah. like, "How do you know if what you're going to do is going to resonate with a big audience? Yeah, or how do you know if it's not? You know, I, yeah." He's someone who would know, and he I'll never forget this. He said he calls me Andrew. That's and awesome. He goes, he goes, Andrew, you know, you just got need to do something that's meaningful to you yeah. and important to you, and hope that when you put out in the universe, it finds uh it finds its audience. Yeah. And he says, if you are trying to trying to hit the mark and hit those numbers, you know, that's where you fail. And yeah. I, I never forgot that. And that was like seven years ago. He told me that. And it kind of shifted how I feel about when I create music. You know, I always felt like I was trying to hit the trends and yeah. stuff that was I felt like would be mainstream. And mm -hmm. then I realized, no, like you need to do what matters, what what you care about. And if you can monetize it, yeah. great. But if not, it's better than punching a clock when you're doing your art and feeling like feeling like just part of you dies. Yeah, right? yeah, know? totally. I think it's also when you do that, it's like the art ends up, I mean, that's why it doesn't work usually because the art suffers. Yeah. Um. And that's cool, that, that bit about Weird Al, too, because he's, like, I mean, like, the ultimate example of that, of, like, a guy who's had a career for, what, like, 30-plus years now? Yeah, right. And also, like, started, like, calling into, it was, like, was it Dr. Demento's, like, uh, radio show? Like, <laughs> yeah. he's been, like, on that of just, like, doing the stuff that matters to him. And in a way that, like, you can see how well that's sustained is, like, he is, you know, continued to, like, make great stuff for a really long time. And 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 this idea, you do it well. That's yes. the other half of it. Exactly. You, you, like, with you, with your beautiful, like, designs and making sure your <laughs> show is good and, yeah. like... That's important, man, because you ha you can't – so many people, I think, fall victim to trying to do a bunch of stuff but not finishing it or mm -hmm. or, or putting like that – Like half-assing it. Half-assing it. That, yeah. that, that really – like I heard this quote the other day, uh, gra grasping defeat from the jaws of victory. <laughs> you know? It's, I, I like wrote, that. heard that on a podcast. And yeah. I thought that was cool. So – Yeah. Yeah. There's a cool – I mean, one thing I always think about, especially when you're talking about like playing shows, uh, there's a story I heard of uh, – you know the band at the drive-in that became like Mars yeah, Volta. Definitely. Yeah. So they um there's a story of them. They got booked at a show at like a bowling alley when they were like, you know, 
no one like knew who they were. And I think there's like 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 three people bowling there, and like one guy watching because he was like heard of this band. And he shows up and like he told the story. It's like probably on Reddit or somewhere. It was just like they went just all out. Like you could have sworn they were playing like Madison Square Garden, and like they were doing the full thing, going nuts, like giving it like everything they had. And the idea of like not taking for granted your audience and like uh, making sure that you're putting out like high quality product that you're proud of. Um, and that was a story that always stuck with me of like, you know, I played shows for like 20 people before and I played shows for like thousands of people before and like never taking uh, either of those for granted because there, like, there are people there um, that have showed up and like committed their time to like see you play. Um, it's like you got to like you really got to deliver like the best show possible. That, and that is, I always have this. It's interesting you mention it because that's been a theme on this podcast. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You do it for real. Yeah. Like, there's only twenty or, or sometimes even less people. Yeah. Or 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 if you're having a problem with the sound. Yeah. You can never have that diva attitude. You always have to do it for real. And what facilitates yeah. you doing it for real is knowing you come from an authentic place mm-hmm. and knowing that it doesn't define you. Totally. And that was interesting today when I interviewed this guy Howard. Uh, Scott Warshaw, who was one of the Atari original guys, Atari. Yeah, and it was kind of he became a therapist, right? Oh, interesting. After his the e, his, the ET game he made, kind of was like blamed for helping end Atari's reign. Oh, crazy! And it was, and so he went to become a therapist, and it like struck me that his contributions to pop culture, mm-hmm. he didn't let that define him. Yeah. Meaning that like now he writes and he does all this creative stuff and yeah. that's what gives you that output. Like I can see that in you being on stage feeling that freedom because it comes from a joyful place. It's not a desperate strangling. This is all I have. Right. Yeah. That's dark. It's super dark. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it's like, I think it's a real thing is you want to put everything you have into your art, but you also don't want to like, you don't want to hedge your passion, but you also don't want to be in a spot where like you need to like have your passion conform to like what the trends are right now. And so it's, yeah, I think it's a difficult dance to like figure out what that looks like. How do you make time to create and work on your stuff like in your day? Do you, do you yeah. set time aside or? I try to. Um, yeah. So I, I think um, I was talking to someone uh, years ago and we were talking about like how they spend their time. They, I think it was one of these conversations like, oh, I've been so busy. And I was like, oh, like how, you know, not trying to like call them out, but also like, how have you been spending your time? And, you know, they talk about how much they work and all this. Um, and one thing is like, you basically, uh, Different jobs are, are different for everyone. But like for me, uh, I could probably get eight hours of sleep, uh, work, say like an eight to 10 hour day. Um, and then you have still, you know, at worst, like six, maybe eight more hours. And like some of that's commuting some of that's eating. Yeah. But like, I think we have more time and not everyone to be clear. Like, I think some people are like working multiple jobs, and like have like crazy, crazy schedules. But a lot of people um, actually have more free time than they think they do. And it goes to doing stuff that like is to kind of pass the time, whether it's like checking Instagram or watching Netflix or whatever it is. Or people, I mean, you know, parting too much to exactly. try to kill that emptiness. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then being hung over the next morning and like yeah. not being able to. And so there's like, I think there's more free time uh, than people think. Um, I've also found that for me, for whatever reason, like, I do it uh, in like fairly, uh, like more intense, like creative bursts. And so I'll make a record like the Notorious XX I made in a period of about two and a half weeks. Um, and then, you know, it was like fiddling with it for probably another like week or so. Um, and then listen to it a lot to like make sure I was happy with it. And it probably even like more, more than I needed. Um, but I think there's something really interesting about this idea of like, we have, like, if you think about how long a project or something meaningful to you takes, um, think about taking like a bite-sized part of that. Maybe it's like making one song or like, for me, it'd be like uh, chopping up like a single sample 
and like kind of creating that habit um, where like in business, there's this idea of like building like a minimum viable product or like creating like a nudge habit. Um, and if you like sit down in front of a computer and just commit to like, I'm going to spend 10 minutes like cutting up the sample. Say again, a nudge habit? Yeah. Um, let's see. Did I there's, hear you right? Yeah. I, I think I like miss, miss said what that is. There's a, um, there's this um, like behavioral scientist at Stanford, um, BJ Fogg, who has, I'm forgetting what he calls this, but it's basically this concept of like, if you commit to just doing some like minor action, it's habit creation. So it's like, okay. Oh, right, right, right. The idea is like, you want to start flossing, like just commit to like picking up the floss, like when, before you go to bed and like put it down to start. And it's like something super simple, but like just creating sure. that habit. Um, and you're like, I'm holding this thing. I'm really not going to spend the two minutes to floss. And it nudges the and action. And it nudges. Yeah. It sort ah. of like it encourages you that sort of like that minimum action. Uh, and it creates a habit after they say like 21 days. And so for me, like when I'm in one of these creative things, it's like, I'll be like, you know what? I want to start working on music and like, at this point now, I can have a sort of see the vision of like, I want to make this album. Um, but oftentimes it starts with just like, hey, I haven't like made some music. I've sort of have a couple ideas. And I think also like keeping track of what your ideas are so that when you you sit down, you're not just like that blank page syndrome of like, oh, I have no idea what I'm going to do. Um, and if you have a couple ideas of like things you could work on and like low pressure on yourself to just like, I want to just do this for the sake of doing it and like more about that sort of process than the end result. Um, I found I can like do that for a week, two weeks and like have like five, six, seven, ten songs that like I'm pretty happy with. And then you're in a good spot to like choose what your favorites of those are to put out a record in that long. And it goes back to this kind of happening, this starting as a project at Columbia as a, as your first mashups because you, you were experimenting and there wasn't a lot writing on it. Was it exactly just from your heart? Yeah. And even now, like I think when I like, yeah, so it's definitely like Columbia putting that stuff together. It was pretty low pressure. I mean, it's like, you want to make something people like. But one of the, the really freeing things is when I made that hip-hop record and put it out, I played this show at this bar that I don't even know if it's there anymore called The West End, which is actually awesome. It's like, it's just like side story is like the beat poets used to like smoke cigarettes, like hang out there. So like Kerouac apparently was like every day it would be like drinking and smoking outside there. That's awesome. Which is pretty cool. Um, but anyway, so they had he this- he was at Columbia briefly. I think so, yeah. yeah. He was at Columbia briefly and then was like hanging out in that area with like, I think like Ginsburg and like other people of that era. That's cool. Um, yeah. And so like, anyway, so it was cool. I played the first show, like rap show I ever did was like in the basement of this place. And I remember like playing it. It was like, it was a fun show. And I remember like going online, there was a like campus blog and like some like really like mean comments. And I expected that to be like more devastating than it was. I was like, oh, it's like a random person on the internet who like doesn't like this and like who cares? Um, and sort of having like early negative feedback was something that I think really freed me to be like, I can like, if I don't really care what strangers think of this, like I can just do whatever I think is good. And like, if I like it at the end of the day, that's, you know, icing on the cake. If like other people, it's like, if other people like it that aren't my friends, like that's, you know, all the much better. Yeah. But going with the expectation of like, I just want to make stuff that's up to my own personal bar. And then, uh, yeah, it's, it's always flattering when people do like it, but not trying to, you know, anticipate what people are going to like and using that as like the lens to create stuff. You know, it's, it's a really dangerous thing to outsource your validation. Totally. And it's because it's a drug because like, yeah. if like you're saying a million people downloaded the notorious XX, yeah, that's awesome. But right. then, but, 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 but then it's like, if you do something that only gets 900,000 downloads, right. It's like, yeah. that's still fresh as heck. So it's like a dangerous yeah. thing to like need that. Yes. Those eyes on your project. And that's that, that took me a minute to like figure out that returning to this essence of like, just the joy of, spitting lyrics and making beats and performing yeah. them. And yeah. that's a cool thing to like 
come back to, to come home to yourself like that. And I feel like the Bay for me, you know, like before we, before I saw you, I was walking around the area and we walked past the studio where I did the digital gangster record Yeah, and thinking about like the Bay for me has always been a grounding place because it's where I just started doing my stuff in an uninhibited way. Really? And I always yeah. love coming back here and connecting with other artists and people who have done other things. And it just reminds me, I don't know. It reminds me that I think things happen for a reason. Yeah. And I think that like the way we live forever is to find the things we're passionate about and share that inspiration. And the totally. fact that my inspiration and connecting with you in some part played like tiny part in dude major part in your journey dude, seriously yeah like that got me on the path it was huge for me it means a lot to me man that, no it means it means a ton to me <laughs> it's cool and i always love when i like hearing what you're doing and like yeah it meant a lot to me when you popped up in my show when i was in town and of course I'll always you know always be like proud to know you and it's 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 cool to talk to you man dude the feeling is mutual it's uh i always love catching up with you and uh yeah it's always great uh hearing the latest from you Thanks, man. What can let's so let's talk. So yeah. what do you got coming up? Do you have anything you want to plug? Yeah. Um, it's a great question. I have like I have not been working on music for a bit. I have at this point probably like 20 demos of stuff I've worked on since like midsummer. Um, but usually what happens is like I'll like think about what I like. Usually it's like I'll take a break, like go somewhere. And so I'm going to uh, Mexico with my family for like a week over Christmas. And usually on those I'll be like just listening to a bunch of stuff and like start the wheels spinning around like, okay, like here are like cool samples or interesting things that happened to music this year. And one of the awesome things is like, because like we were talking before, there's just so much music out there available. Um, there's a bunch of weird stuff that like comes out that I really like. Mm. Um, and it's interesting, like a lot of, I don't know if you've been like following this, but like the new, the next wave of hip hop has like pretty controversial as far as like what's popular. And like, to be totally honest, like I'm not on board with a lot of it, but like topically to, you mean or sonically? I think like uh, who the artists are and I think both. I mean, some like really popular stuff right yeah. now. I do like like I do like a lot of mainstream stuff. There's some like um, some rappers now where it's like their backgrounds and like they're like problematic people. And also um, they feel very much like, you know, the like, uh, yeah, without like saying anybody's names, like they're trying to like capture um, something with an audience that's very transient sort of like teenage just like quick hits kind of audience face tats and exactly and and glorifying um, yeah like benzodiazepines ex exactly that's yeah. exactly the thing and it's, I, I do think that like there is um certainly like some value um in the production of that music but like lyrically and sonically as far as like voices go i'm like not, not super into it um and it's too bad i think it's been distracting from like what's been otherwise like a lot of like super awesome stuff that's been happening in music and in rap um and so i think like all going back to this idea of like, I have a lot of music that I've sort of bookmarked, like I want to go back to figure out if there are like samples that I'll pull from them. Mm. Um, and yeah, we'll see. Um, I think for me, like making records is a nice way to sort of like, um, sort of use that part of my brain again of like just doing something like my like day to day, I'm like doing design stuff and like creative stuff, but it's very different for me, like doing it with music. Cause I'm just listening to music all the time. And like, it's almost like, imagine you're like uh you have like a picture and like the more you listen to music it's like filling up and like for me making records like okay you have to like empty some of that out and like sort of like take all these ideas that have been brimming for a while and like actually like make product with them um and so i think i'm like i'm getting to that point where it's like that that picture is getting pretty full and yeah. so i need to i need to like go through and like figure out uh putting out probably a record uh early next year cool yeah the holidays are a good time for reconnecting with the music we love don't you agree i agree yeah, yeah. it's like do you find when you go home like do you talk to like friends from high school or like family much about music 
for like influence? I like, there are a few people in my life who I, um, yeah, I always love to hear what they, they found entertaining yeah. about the year. Totally. And, um, and I like, there's like groups that I follow who like, maybe I, I, ch- I check for what they did that year if they did some right. r- weird stuff. And I, you know, there's, um, there's a group, Grand Buffet from Pittsburgh that, yeah, yeah. that I love. Totally. And they've done these really cool side projects. Uh, Lord Grunge did this really great uh, series of noise records okay. that I've been listening to a lot and. I love those guys a lot because, you know, I, I got to like play a show with them and that was awesome. And yeah. I've always loved how they just took mad chances. And and so every year it's like a tradition for me to catch up on my Grand Buffet side project totally. dish, you know? Wait, did they, do you play with them in uh, New York? Yeah. Was it when you had the residency at, uh, what was that spot called? Like Lower East Side? Oh, when, wait, was it the Nurekin? Nah, I'm going to forget the name of it. It was like a... It was like, I want to say it was like four like weeks in a row, like was this once a week. Recently? No, this was like 2005 or six. Yeah, I think, where was that? That was, it was like in, um, it was like. Was it pianos? Yeah, it, it was, no, it was that era, but yeah. it, this was at the, the um, Bowery, Bowery Poetry Club. Yeah, okay, and, okay. And it was part of CMJ okay, when cool. I got to play with them. But I was doing that the, those shows at pianos. Okay. Which, you have a cool. good memory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> I. I, I like to connect the dots with groups that were, that were important to me and, and see what they're doing. And it, yeah. I think there's more satisfaction if, you know, I have a few friends who have similar, similarly esoteric yeah. tastes, right? Totally. Do you find that too? Like, like you, I don't know, go back and listen to new stuff by artists you haven't. Totally. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think like, um, I saw Sage Francis come through probably like Seven months ago, seven eight months you ago, went? dude, totally went. Was it good? Was that elbow room, yeah. Dude, was he was with awesome. um with B Dolan? Yeah, he was. Cool, cool. I think he. I think B Dolan opened. Yeah. Um, it's funny because they're like both like the big like bearded dudes. Yeah, <laughs> got that whole aesthetic. Um, but yeah, it was incredible. It was like it was cool seeing him in like a smaller venue too because he just like controls an audience and like his vocal control and his flow and breath control is just like next level. He's like KRS in that he's always a great live MC. Yeah. No matter what. Yeah. With a band or just with tracks. Yeah. Like Sage is pretty unstoppable yeah he was pretty cool um <laughs> That's and cool. then yeah that reminded me because i think like atmosphere i think came out with an album recently ish i've been heard it. um but yeah that's another one i have it bookmarked of like i gotta go back and check cool. this out and uh yeah i mean there's been like it's funny like eminem little wayne kanye like all these guys who have been listening to it for a long time have had new albums come out this year that i've given some attention to but like we'll probably go back and, and get my fresh take on I like that Eminem record. Yeah. Like, I we, like what I've heard for sure. It's uh, Ashley and I were listening on our honeymoon and I associate with like, we went to um, British Columbia. Oh, amazing. And I am driving through the mountains and listening to it. And he just still has that lyrical fire. Yeah. And you know, like, like I think it's, a, I thought it was a good record. And then when he came back with the MGK retaliation, yeah, you just still got it. You, you know? still got it. You, you don't st- want to mess with Eminem. You can't. And you, you can't. <laughs> you can't sleep on him. You always have to check for what Eminem. Yeah, doing. <laughs> it's good. Like he's. It's interesting. Like the samples he pulled, and also um, he got that guy uh, Joiner Lucas on it. Yeah, who I think he's like a really dope new rapper. Like he's one of those guys I think of when I think about like the face tat rappers who are like taking up a lot of attention. When they're like people like if they're trying to pay attention to rap and they just see that, they're like, oh, like new rap is not good. It's like well, you're missing out on guys like him who are like doing really awesome stuff. And great concepts and great videos. Exactly. Great videos. You know, um, I remember when I posted something about, this is funny, like 
a few years ago, I posted about how I was into Action Bronson and Danny Brown and yeah. new, new MCs I liked. And you messaged me like, I like those new rappers too. Dude, like, absolutely. Charlie likes what I'm into now. <laughs> I'm on the right track. Yeah. You can't, you know, you this comes this comes up sometimes when I talk to some of the older nerdcore guys. Yeah. You can't all of a sudden say, oh, new rap now. It's rap sucks now. I hate when people say that. a dangerous place. I hate it when people say that. Yeah. I, always, I remember having this thought when I was like a teenager um, and like, it was cool. My dad uh, used to like, he knew that I was in a rap. He was like not super in a rap, but like he would like experiment with it. Like I remember one time hopping in and he had like the outcast, like speaker box, love below album in his car. Way to like, go dad. Yeah, I was like, that's awesome. <laughs> um, yeah. And I remember him like, I think uh, Kanye, he got like a Grammy nom for, um, for his first album for college dropout. And like, I remember my dad like got that album. It was just, like, and not like got it for me as a gift, just like had it around. I was like, dude, that's awesome. And I remember thinking like how cool that was to like, there's a lot of studies about like people's favorite music is like the stuff that they grew up listening to and like debates or if it's around the time you're like 13 or 18 or whatever it was. But like, I always thought like what a tragic thing to be like stuck in this, like you get to a certain time, you're like, I don't like new music. And it's like, that's awful. Like think about if you had that with like any other thing in your life where you're like, I don't like new, whatever, like new movies, like new, um, meeting new friends, like how like basically the richness of life you're like missing out on by like refusing to or just deciding you don't want to listen to like other new music. You were a psych major, right? I was, yeah. So I remember there's the learning about classical conditioning versus operant conditioning. Oh man, taking me back. And and how like the pa- classical conditioning would be Pavlov, right? Yeah. You hear a song, a Taking Back Sunday song you like, you remember a great memory from high school. Yeah. And then operant conditioning is the rat knowing if he push he or she pushes the pedal and the, and the pellet comes out. Yeah. Button, right? And so you kind of want to have both classical and operant conditioning with music. You want totally. to know that like, if you, if you open your mind to something new, you'll get satisfaction from it. But there's those songs you like totally. in your wheelhouse, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's also, I mean, one thing that's interesting too, is like, if there are new genres, you start to like more, like as you know, you progress the music. Cause it's like, I mean, I remember us talking about like punk rock, like a while back. And then we also listened to a bunch of hip hop and like, yeah. these are, I guess like genres that have like similar ethos behind them, but like sonically sound uh, largely pretty different. And then I found like one genre I've been listening to a lot, like in the last say like five, six years is more like random, like ambient, like Sigur Rose, like old mm. Brian, Eno, just like cool stuff like that. And like, I have this theory that there's like a perfect song for like a, like a perfect time for everyone. And like trying to find what that is. And like, for me, like I found that like mellowing out, like about to go to sleep, like sometimes I'll listen to like Rick Ross, but most of the time it'll be like an old, like Brian, Eno, like music for airports kind of thing, or like a Sigur Rose album or yeah. Finding like new genres is like, a really cool thing as you get older to be like, oh, I actually really appreciate this thing that like I never would have given the time of day to like 10 years ago. That has then all the artists and the discographies of this stuff. Right. And it's like such a rich history that you like can see like who was in conversation with each other and like one of my favorite things like about music is like seeing not only how things progress and actually with hip hop especially is like I almost think of like you know, Lil Wayne, Eminem, Kanye, these are like narratives I've been following now for like 15 years. And it's like, every time they have a new album, it's almost like you get an update on like what's going on in their lives. And mm-hmm. like, it's pretty cool. Like being able to see like who's friends with who. And like, it's in a lot of ways, like, I mean, hip hop is storytelling, but when people say that, I think they think of it as like an album is a story. And actually like the whole genre is a story. And like, because it's so collaborative, like seeing uh, how people interact with each other and like who's on whose side and what they're talking about, what the subliminals are, like that's always been super interesting to me. And I don't think like, that sort of fabric across the genre is necessarily as rich, or at least I don't understand it to be as rich um, in other genres, but there is still elements of that as far as like, re- like people making reference to and like collaborating with people in these other genres. I'm like just starting to like get into. Yeah. And I mean, and that's what's great about rap because it's so personal. Yeah. The great, the best rappers are themselves. Totally. Know? And one of the, my favorite artists in the past 
five years is Little Peep. Yeah. Were you into him? Yeah, I was. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was interesting because it's funny. He's one of those people that I think probably got branded as like part of that sort of face tat rap. And I initially dismissed. Um, and then it was like some, it was like Diplo or someone who I would not have expected to be like, oh, like this guy's like pretty dope. Yeah. Um, started listening to him, but like, unfortunately, like pretty late in, uh, in his career. Um, but yeah, I did, I did like his stuff. I like how he fused the things that you and I grew up that enjoying and it didn't yeah. feel hackneyed or cliched. It felt like the young generation doing something dope with, with emo and yeah. trap and, and SoundCloud stuff. And totally. It, and it, it, and it's an interesting, it's a sad thing because it's like, here was a guy who could have done a lot and it was totally right. an accident. And right. It was just like clearly on his way to like, yeah, to, to, to changing a lot of music. Yeah. And it's interesting, man. Cause it's like, I, you talked about that, that new wave of music and I think it, rap always is like the canary in the coal mine. It reflects where we're going and like what's good about our culture, but what's bad about it. Yeah. And it's this escape now and it's this, our obsession with attention and views and yeah. the violence and uh, rest in peace, XXX Tension, but yeah. like his problematic history with women and totally how we, how we construe gender. And mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I think my point in saying all this is even when the modern stuff is problematic, you need to be up on it because it keeps you young yeah. and it keeps your keeps you relevant. And thank goodness for like Spotify and and tastemakers and people and yeah. you know what I mean? Like the ability to follow the str these strains in a way. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I think, I mean, for all the the issues that Instagram might cause as far as like people's like addiction stuff, it's also another medium that I think people connect with musicians a lot on, right? Like I think, um, you know, if you look at like uh, rappers that had like the um, – the level of fame as like uh, like XXX Tension, um, if that was like 10 years ago, like I don't think based on like number of people who like heard that music, if it was the same number, like there'd be that sort of like same kind of like public response to his death. Um, but because like people felt this like very strong connection to him, uh, in part from his music, in part from like his personality, like on Instagram, mm. um, and like being able to connect with artists, I think that is like a really powerful thing in hip hop today that like, people take advantage of uh, in mostly good ways and sometimes not so good ways. But like um, people want stories and narratives and characters and people to root for. And I think Instagram provides like a window into like, I mean, how dope would that have been to see like, you know, bigger Tupac's like Instagram feed for like the, you know, couple years before they passed away or like Eminem yeah. on the come up of like meet and Dre and like seeing what that Instagram, like that'd be amazing. And like being able to have that window into somebody's life, I think really connects you with the artist a lot more. And I think that's why hip hop um, as a genre is like, I would guess, I mean, I have no data on this, but I'd assume that like rappers, if you look at the ratios or like number of followers interactions they have on Instagram is going to be much higher than like equivalents, like people with like number of plays on Spotify and like rock bands. And I mean, maybe DJs, but like, yeah, they're characters that people really want to like understand more about because it's, it's really more, it's often about, well, it's about two things. It's about the hooks and yeah. about the characters. Yeah. And if you have those two things and, and you're persistent, you're going to do okay. Yeah. And that's cool. I think so. And I also, I mean, one of my, you know, sort of without sounding too curmudgeonly, uh, one of my things with like the new wave of rappers is like the focus sometimes being so much on that character and not as much on the music. And so I think, you know, what happens is like there's a natural sorting mechanism where if the music isn't good, like you're going to not, you know, you're not going to make it for more than a couple months. Um, versus if you are making like high quality music, like that will persist and like, I think one of my favorite rappers now uh, is Vince Staples. I don't know if you like listen to yeah, his stuff. He's, he's awesome. He's an awesome dude. Like he's got like, I think really thoughtful takes on like a lot of things. 
Um, and just like, I think he's hilarious. Like probably my favorite interview in hip hop is just like every one of his interviews, he's just like filled with like amazing, like nuggets of like wisdom and just like great sound bites. Um, and then also his music is like really like fire music and like he, he bridges those two, I think in a really awesome way. Yeah. I remember he has that album where it's like a burning house. Yeah. 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 I think, um, that's pretty old now. Yeah. That's pretty old. I think it's, I think that's hell can wait. And he had this yeah. one summertime 06, which was uh, a double album, huh. really good. Um, and then he had one that was like, it's funny. There's sort of this trend I think in hip hop of like a little more so like emo, just emotions in hip hop. Um, and so we had one that came out, oh, I got a blank on the name. It was like a seven song EP that was like very personal and very like dark thoughts kind of like going through his head. Um, and it's interesting like seeing that trend of like, you know, I think rappers, there's still that notion like brag about the typical stuff that people brag about in rap. There's also like, like if you listen to this guy, Juice World at all, mm-hmm. um, he's got a song that sounds like it could be like a Blink-182 song from like 20 years ago. Um, but it's like in rap form and feels like very authentic to like him and his style. Um and I think it like hit number one like earlier this year. Uh, is I think it's Lucid Dreams, and uh, it's cool seeing like people like because there's so many people experimenting with different stuff in hip hop now too. That like and they know that like them putting themselves out there as sort of like vulnerable characters, it creates like more multi-dimensional rappers, or it should. Um, and that's been a cool trend to see. I've like really liked that about this sort of new wave of rap. Do you li- listen to Denzel Curry? Yeah, yeah, I do a He's little bit. Tight. He's, He's tight. tight. I like him a lot. And um, I, I've been a fan of, even though it's darker, the Suicide Boys stuff. I've heard of them. I haven't listened to their stuff though. They're dope. The yeah. production's dope. I mean, it's dark and yeah. it's, um, they have a few guys that work with this guy, Fat Nick and okay. this guy, Ghost Main. Okay. But it it feels like it's a mixture of like death metal. Okay. The better, older ICP stuff. Nice. And like modern, heavy, angry rap mixed with like punk rock. Nice. And it's, it's, um, the songs are short. Okay. And it's, it's very atmospheric. Give them, yeah, give them like, a, give them 10 minutes of your time. Okay. And I think that like, if you're in like an angry mood or like working out or something, yeah, yeah, yeah. it is perfect. Like I, I have cool. a playlist of like 500 of my favorite songs in that and all the people they work with, you yeah. know, it's just, God, it's like, it makes me so happy that hip hop is in this creative place you talked yeah. about where there's there it's about just being real being totally. yourself yeah I think it's cool I mean there's like kind of something for everyone right like you have like the very intellectual hip hop you have like trap hip hop you have like good like gangster rap um, and it's like not everything has to be for everyone it's like I think it's actually like a very good thing to have like this sort of broadening of hip hop where it's not just like whatever like the popular stuff is and then like other stuff gets forgotten um, and so yeah I mean I've like it's been cool like having different rappers different groups like and also like seeing them like kind of bridge genres too of like you know, you have someone who's making what might be more sort of introspective, like mellow hip hop, like hop on a track with someone that you would never think is a match for them. Mm. Um, like Action Bronson has a record that came out that he got like ASAP Rocky to like do a verse on. And it like works really well. Mm. Um, and so like seeing that kind of like sort of like cross uh, genre, cross like subgenre collaboration and seeing them sort of like push each other to like different places they might not go otherwise. I think that's really dope. I think it's a really cool vibe. Well, as someone who's done a lot in your music with like mix mixing things up and mashing things together that's like i could tell why you like appreciate that. <laughs> where, yeah charlie where do you where do you send people to follow you and to like keep up on your stuff yeah um good question i mean it's um wait what music has all my music stuff um and i like spend too much time on twitter um c k u b is in boy a l um just c kubal on twitter um and so yeah i'm you know post some of my stuff post random musings post things I find interesting 
on the internet. <laughs> when we started this interview, I, I got here like right before you and you rolled up on your, uh, is it a, it's a motorcycle? Uh, it's a motorbike. So it's a, yeah. it's a, it's like a Vespa type scooter. So I always like feel weird saying it's a scooter. Uh-huh. You, like you tell somebody you have a scooter and people think you're on like a razor scooter. But there's not a good word. I've been like, this is like, been a, I've been stumped on like what to call this thing. Cause I don't want to call it a scooter, but like motorbike is like, it's a forced motor term. Scooter. Motor scooter. You that look- sounds like, motor scooter though, sounds like one of those things that like an elderly person has. It's like a wheelchair replacement through Walmart. And like, I'm not trying to do that. So I don't know. Your mo- let's say your, um, your bike. My bike. You roll up and your dog <laughs> is sitting in this really cool like, Thing you've constructed with goggles on yeah it's actually so funny fact about those uh they're called doggles when uh, you have them for a dog yeah uh so he's got his doggles on um i love that stuff it's actually the bike was in the shop like two weeks ago and i realized i was like not as like happy or energetic i was like oh what's like different and honestly it's like that ride like being able to like feel the wind in your face and like just zip through traffic in san francisco and yeah. not deal with like the hassles of parking or like trying to use like lyft or uber um and like He's into it. He's, you know, he's like a 15 pound, like little terrier dog named, um, named Rufus. And yeah, he sits in that carrier. He has his, his dog goggles, his doggles on. And then also like the Bluetooth speaker. So I can like just listen to music. Yeah. You're bumping your jam. Yeah, dude. I tight. love that. It's, it's like, I'm in a very good zone. I'm traveling now. You have I'm a, you have a, a little p- section on your page about your dog. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like one of these people who was like very dismissive of like people get like too into their pets. I was like, that's ridiculous. How are you going to buy a dog a sweater? You're like an adult person. And then, like, I got this dog, and next thing you know, I'm, like, putting him in a sweater and, like, taking a picture. And it's not, like, an everyday thing, not to give anyone, like, the wrong impression. Like, I'm, uh, like, that level of obsessed with the dog. It's, like, a Halloween and Christmas thing. But still, um, yeah, his dog, Rufus, uh, he's almost six. He's, like, a rescue from the Mission SPCA. Um, he's got a cool personality. We spend a lot of time together. I take him to work Oh, he's days. a rescue? Yeah, he's That's a rescue. That's awesome. Yeah, he's cool. He's, um, it's cool, like, because he's got, like, a cool personality of a dog where it's, like, he's, he's like psyched to see me, but he's also, he's not putting up with like a bunch of bullshit. So I had this funny thing where like the night before shows, he was probably like a year old. I was at my old apartment and I was uh, producing um, like a couple tracks I want to play live and like did this thing where I don't know if you ever get into this, but you like start something and like you just end up staying up way too late doing it. And like, he's kind of looking at me like, come on, man, it's like 1230, one, It's like Thursday night, the lights are on. I'm trying to go to sleep. Looks unhappy. He crawls under the couch. I'm like, oh man, that's not good. So I'm like wrapping up, spend another probably like half hour doing it. I'm like, all right, Rue, like, come on, like time to go to bed. And I'm exhausted. I got like work the next day before this like Friday night show. Uh, and I'm like brushing my teeth and he hops on top of the bed, turns and looks at me and just pees all over the bed. And it was like, don't ever mess with me again. I was like, okay. Don't ever keep me up late with your music. Exactly. Like, I'm not, I'm not a fan of your rap music and what you're trying to do here. When you're at work, what does he just chill with you at your desk? Yeah. He, uh, I, you know, I take him for walks throughout the day. Um, there's a bunch of other dogs that like hang out, um, both at IDEO and at, at the, um, last, at both at my startup and at light 360 also. So like, there's like a good number of like dogs he hangs out with during the day. He's pretty mellow. Like he's got a dog bed, which is actually funny. Like when I got him, my dad had like never met him. My dad like texts me. He's like, yo, I'm uh, by the office right now. Uh, I got a gift for Rufus. My dad's like a big dog guy. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Like, let's, uh, you know, I'll meet you and get it. And it was like the Costco, like XL dog bed, like for like a hundred pound dog. And so he looks, he's like, it basically looks like a baby lying on like Shaq's bed. There's like just so much room. He could roll over like three times, like not get to the <laughs> other side of it. Um, so it's just like comically large dog bed that he like lounges in and he's very protective of. That's the one time that he like does not want other dogs around as they get too close to his bed. It's like under your desk. Or yeah, like exactly. Desk? It's like yeah. right next to my desk. Um, and it's cool. He's like, 
he uh, I think he likes just like being around people and kind of like keeping it mellow. Um, and we like go for walks around and he's, uh, he's very curious about the world, which I appreciate. I think dogs like do a good job of like making people kind of like slow down and like actually like appreciate the world around them. He's like his owner. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> San Francisco is a great city to have a dog, right? It is. It's yeah. really nice. Yeah. They, like a lot of good dog parks. Um, and like, there's actually like some coffee shops that have outdoor areas. You can like bring your dog in. Can you bring them on BART or do people? Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, I'm trying to remember. So you can definitely bring them on BART. Caltrain is like a little bit touch and go. Um, I've brought them on before. Um, but I think like there are some rules that like, I think basically with like dogs generally, one, it's like any food establishment. Like I totally get like the, it's a, you know, you have to have like healthy food and not have like dog hair like in there, which totally makes sense. Um, I think for a lot of stuff, if people don't want dogs somewhere, it's cause like they don't want to have to make rules against having like really rowdy dogs or like hundred plus pound dogs. But like, Generally, he's like 15 pounds, like pretty mellow. I don't try and like push it to places where he's not allowed, but it's, you know, he's never been a problem. And like for the most part, people are totally fine. So yeah, I hang out with him like a good amount. So if you go to uh, charliecubal.com, right? Yeah, yeah. You have pictures in a section. on. Yeah, he's got his own Instagram account. Uh, I don't know if I ever told you the story, but like I one time like posted a picture of him. I never posted anything on Reddit, posted it on like one of the subreddits, went to sleep, woke up and like got a bunch of texts from friends. Like this picture of Rufus on the front page of Reddit. Like, that's crazy. And there's all these, like, comments and stuff and, like, people, like, trying to guess which park in San Francisco it's from. I was like, this is nuts. I'm going through, like, hundreds of comments. And that was crazy. And then, like, three weeks later, uh, someone, like, reposted it so that he got, like, you know, all their karma for it being posted. What was the picture? It was a picture of him at uh, at Corona Heights, which is his park uh, in San Francisco that I used to go to uh, with him, like, a couple days a week. Um Anyway, so he's uh, he's there and sort of like wind in his face and like this really cool like background of the sky. And he like has this like majestic looking like dark beard with this sort of lighter coat. And it's just it's a very regal looking photo. Um, and anyway, so it's on Reddit and uh, this person reposts it. I like, I think it hit the front page again. I was like, that's crazy. Like it's, it's, this is like all happening again. And later that afternoon, uh, Ellen DeGeneres' Instagram posts the picture. And it like blows up. What? And so yeah, that's like Rufus's claim to fame is Ellen posted him on her Instagram, uh, but like didn't tag him, which I was like kind of bummed about. So he like didn't get any of the follows. But whatever, he was you know famous. And actually, okay, so that I thought was gonna be the craziest. Yeah. And then I was in LA like two years ago, and I'm at uh, brunch with like some friends, and I look, and there's this lady like with a tote bag, like one of these like canvas totes. And the picture is printed on a canvas no. toe. Yes. And I was like, how do I like, and she was walking by and like my immediate compulsion is like, I need to like stop this lady, figure out like how she got that bag. And then I like imagine how that conversation would play out to be like, oh yeah, that's a picture of my dog on your bag, which like would have sounded like a very like weird thing to say to a stranger. Right. So I didn't, I, yeah, didn't chase her down. Probably would have been stoked though. Maybe. Yeah. Depends on if she's on the phone or. Yeah. And also I feel like I worry it could come off as like a really bad pickup line. And she's like, no. <laughs> That's awesome. But yeah, it was super cool. I was like, that's amazing. So did you find out who's selling these or did no she idea. print it on? Yeah, I think, I mean, I doubt that she like went to the trouble of like, maybe she did. I don't, yeah, I have no idea. I've never seen them any other time. It's one of those things where I like, it almost feels like a dream, but I like, I remember the visual like so clearly. Like yeah. that's crazy. That photo I took on, that's actually like, you know, like modern like thing where you like, you take a picture on your phone, you post it on Instagram, then it gets on Reddit, then this celebrity right, sees right. it, posts it, and then someone prints a bag up and then you see the bag. It's like, what a crazy, just like, yeah, it's like a microcosm of like how the internet works and like affects our day-to-day lives. And or doing a mashup that's number one in the hype machine. It's <laughs> like, yeah, that's cool, man. Yeah, it's kind of nuts. Well, thank you for talking to me. Dude, this thank has you been for talking to me. Good. This has been a blast. I uh, really enjoyed it. 
And uh, yeah, so check check out Charlie on Twitter and on Instagram. Yeah, on Instagram, uh, C Kubel also tried to. I like switch my handle from like a weight what like related handle to like be all C Kubel recently. It was like a it's like digital growing up where you like all your personalities yeah. come together to be one. <laughs> where did, where can they get the Family Circus um, parody? Book? Oh, uh, it's uh, it's linked on um, on weightwhatmusic.com, but also uh, Cirque spelled like like. Cirque du Soleil style, so like C-I-R-Q-U-E, uh, disobey.com. So yeah, CirqueDisobey.com uh, has the book and you can get it, the digital version, you can get like canvas prints, like the one that I had at the, the art show. Um, or you can also get uh, the physical book and I'll, I'll send you a copy. And if you send me a note, I'll like write something to you if you want. Do you think you'll do another one? Or? I'd like to, yeah. yeah. I wonder if I do like the Family Circus again, or I always have like ideas bumping around. Far side, dude. Dude, Far Side would be cool. Yeah, it would be very cool. With it's like also, rock lyrics, maybe. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, I, I like that. Yeah, oh, that's something to to think about. I don't that's know. a good one. Yeah, no, that'd be cool. That'd be <laughs> super cool. Keep your eyes peeled. We we never know what Charlie's going to do next. <laughs> yeah, hopefully some good stuff. Thanks, buddy. Thanks a lot, man. album is dedicated to all the teachers that told me I never amount to nothing. To all the people that lived above the buildings that I was hustling from that called the police on me when I was just trying to make some money to feed my daughter. And to all my peoples in the struggle, you know what I'm saying? It's all good, baby, baby. It was all a dream. I used to read Word Up magazine. Salt and pepper and heavy D up in the limousine. Hanging pictures on my wall. Every Saturday, rap attack, Mr. Magic, Molly Mall. I let my tape rock to my tape pop. Smoking weed and bamboo, sipping on private stock. Way back when I had the red and black lumberjack with the hat to match. Remember rapping Duke? The hard, the hard. You never thought that hip hop would take it this far. Now I'm in the limelight cause I rhyme tight. Time to get paid, blow up like the world trade. Born sinner, the opposite of a winner. Remember when I used to eat sardines for dinner? Peace to Raw G, Brucey e. B, Kid Capri. Funk, Master Flex, Love Bug, Star Ski. I'm blowing up like you thought I would. Call a crib, same number, same hood. It's all good. Limousine with the chauffeur. Phone bill about two G's flat. No need. To-
to worry, my accountant handles that. And my whole crew is lounging, celebrating every day, no more public housing. Thinking back on my one-room shack, now my mom pimps an act with minks on the back. And she loves to show me off, of course, smiles every time my face is up in the sauce. We used to fuss when the landlord dissed us, no heat, wonder why Christmas missed us. Birthdays was the worst days, now we sip champagne when we thirsty. Uh, damn right I like the life I live, cause I went from negative to positive and it's all. Watch things on Thank you, Charlie. Be sure to follow my homie's activities. He's a very interesting guy doing cool stuff. Next week, speaking of interesting Bay Area legends, we've got Peck the Town Crier. So Chris Peck is a musical legend I've looked up to since I was a kid. His dad and my dad went to college together, and uh, his brother is my sister's godbrother. It's kind of confusing, but um, he's like a cousin to me, and we've, we grew up hanging out a lot. He always supported my music. We were roommates for a while in Marin County. And he is the reason why I met my wife, Ashley. He played me the Handjob Academy videos early on. Um, he introduced me to Ashley's music before I met her. So I have Chris to thank because I was when I met her, I was like, oh, I know this, this woman from her videos. So anyway, Chris has an album coming out next week and it's called Ancient Baby. We talk about what it was like to work on his album. He spent years on it and it's a very different perspective than... Um, you know, my whole thing is with music. I put out 24 songs a year and then albums. And Chris is the kind of guy who's more focused and urgent with his material. I guess, no, I guess you would say I'm more urgent. He's more, Chris is kind of more laid back, but I wouldn't say laid back. He takes a lot of care in every song, every riff, every note. And he's built a really cool scene in Fairfax, California. He's really known there. He teaches guitar and he is respected. And so his show is going to be a great great premiere. So be sure to check that out. That's next Monday. And then our tour starts a week from tomorrow. It's all good. Thanks for listening to the MC Lars podcast. Thanks, Charlie, for being on. To check out my entire archive of music and the new fan requested songs, please go to patreon.com slash MC Lars. And please tell a friend about the podcast. And please stay joyful. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.